0: One. Fight. Fight. This is episode 21 of Don't Be A Scrub Podcast. My name is Sparta Carnage, aka Verbosmute mute on Xbox Live. My interviewing partner is Mutton, a.k.a. Muttonhead01 on Xbox Live and PSN. With the final the Showdown trailer being out in the wild, we thought we would help out our international guests get to know Australia a little bit better in a segment which we started in our last episode called Random Facts About Australia. As everyone knows, one of the founding reasons for Australia as a colony of the former British Empire was to dump convicts. But did you know that the first Australian police force known as the Night Watch back in those days was actually made up of the eight best behaved convicts? And you thought the LAPD was corrupt. So now that everyone's learned something new about Australia, uh, today we actually have a huge episode. Um, this is by far our longest interview we've ever done, um, clocking in over two and a half hours. Uh, the person that we interviewed can basically be called one of the founding members of the Australian fighting game community. He has been running tournaments in Australia for over 10 years. One of the founding members of OzHado and the Australian National Tournament called OHN, and of course I am talking about Ziggy. And the interview starts off a little bit um, randomly because we've been trying to set this up for quite a while. Really excited to just sort of get into the meat of the conversation. Yeah, we really hope you enjoy this interview. So you want to start? Oh, yeah, well, um, what we we were talking about, yeah, so the current schedule.
1: I think it's much better this year than what it was last year by far. I mean, hands down, everybody's not on top of each other. Everyone's talking, everyone's sort of planning. It was still a little bit of like um, SS being the monster that it is, kind of had to whack its flag in the ground and say, this is where we are and everyone else could build around it. But there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's a perfectly sensible way of doing things. And um, it worked out well, because the timing of EVO this year, if we had gone with our original plans to be post-SS, EVO tie would have fallen to pieces. So by having to pull back to the summer, it actually worked out better for EVO tie-backs. We don't really know what's happening later part of the year. We know roughly when BAM's going to be. We still don't know what Queensland's doing. We don't quite know what ACL are doing this year, but they've got plans on the table. But it's way better this year. Like, I think if... If there is any concerns about certain people not turning up at SS, I wouldn't put it down to the timing um, in terms of relative closeness of tournaments. It'd be other factors like external things getting in the way and stuff like that. Stuff that's out of everybody's control, pretty much.
2: Okay. Well, I mean, to clarify, because we left out the start of the question, I was asking Ziggy um, if he was coming down to SS, and he said that he's not coming down to SS and a bunch of other people aren't coming down, and I was asking whether that had anything to do with, even though we've kind of spread the events out a bit more this year, but it kind of feels that even two or three months isn't enough time for people to kind of recover financially mm. and, and uh, kind of like from the, from the work that they put into the events. I mean, but I guess um, you feel that that's, that isn't a factor.
1: No, not, not especially. Like, I mean, myself, I was like I was pretty dead after OHN, as you would expect. But now that it t- takes about a month for me to kind of get over it and feel like I want to do stuff again. Having said that, I've got nothing on the cards at the moment, so I'm kind of climbing the walls with not much to do, but that's all right. The thing is more now, the, the threat, I don't know what the hype factor is towards even like Evo. I'm not feeling... A lot of hype at the moment. I think that it's a function of the games that are out at the moment and where people are with relation to the games. I mean, ultimately, the scene is a function of the games. So if the games aren't popping, then the scene's not popping sort of thing. I don't feel like... I feel like Street Fighter Cross Tekken has landed with a whimper rather than a a crash. And um, with Street Fighter 4 kind of petering out and Marvel's sort of sitting in the middle limbo ground at the moment. like It's popular, but it's not, if you know what I mean.
2: Yes, I do agree. mm, And... And over here in Victoria, our, our, for our events, like our cross-second registration for tournaments have kind of like dropped off a
1: cliff kind yeah. of recently. Oh, really?
2: So what is it like in Sydney for you guys?
1: Well, I think today YSB will be the first one they've done. So like they they, they took March off because it was the month after I chance so they just will do nothing in March and recover. So April was the first time they were going to do it. And they also sneakily use that as an opportunity to give people a month with cross-tech and to decide how they felt and today it'll just be well they're running a bracket they want to see what the interest is like because i don't know if you've read on the forums but some of the guys i think um jaunty and um might good part of talking about putting together like a Randbat series through ysb now and they're still sort of going through game selection phase
2: yep i saw the the points and the seedings and all this stuff the keeping of results and
1: yeah yeah so those guys have come out of the O H N and experience rather keen which is good to see so we'll, we'll see what happens. I think they're in their minds at the moment. for Street Fighter 4 and Marvel are sort of must-haves to kick it off, but Cross is kind of on the sidelines because they're waiting to see how people feel about it. I think when Evo came out with the pair play thing, that kind of has thrown everybody for a loop. They're sort of looking to Evo to sort of say, we think this game is legit, and when they did that, everyone sort of said, "Oh."
0: See, the other thing is I think Evo is really only very America-focused. For example, like other countries, they don't, really have the player base to
1: do 2v2. Absolutely. Yeah, no, the, um Australia will struggle to have a strong 2v2 uh, scene, I think, just because of the numbers. I mean, if you've got a tournament with typically 20-odd people turning up at locals, then you've only got like 10 teams. That's that's nothing Nothing. Uh, incredible. I, I mean, something like Wednesday Night Fights might be able to do it, where they get like 100 dudes randomly every week without any Trouble. Yeah, I but, think they,
0: they put up like numbers about 80, 70 to 80, so yeah. that makes it okay. But that even then, it's only like what, maybe a 32-man bracket, a little bit yeah. more
1: than that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. The other thing that I thought was interesting when they did the pair play was, at first, um, people were complaining on SRK forum, uh, sorry, the blog going, oh man, I was going to go, but now that I need a partner, I'm not so keen anymore. Some people responded saying, well, dude, just use the forums and find a partner. I mean, we've been doing that since like Team Third Strike and stuff. Yeah, Yeah, but it's not the same. Exactly. You actually need to train with the person. You can't just rock up and, oh, you play your matches and I play mine. It doesn't really matter if our dynamics as a team don't gel. And um, you can practice online, but I mean, half the people playing have Xboxes. They can't necessarily do it. Exactly. The other half, they're really training in lag mode. Um, (laughs) It's sort of... I don't know how it's going to play out because like you can put Justin Wong and um, Alex Valle together on a team, but that doesn't mean they're going to get their combos yeah, right exactly. because yeah. they have to train together and know what each other's tendencies are and when to come in and yeah. do their thing. And it, and it kind of reinforces the advantages that certain uh, locations
2: have, like SoCal where Wong lives with Flo. Mm-hmm. And you know those guys that have situations like that really
0: Precisely. benefit from, from it. You know what, actually, the, this whole 2v2 thing just reminds me of tennis and its doubles. Yeah, the reason why the Woodies were so bloody good in doubles is because they had synergy.
3: Yeah,
0: and it's you know they could train together. They they're basically like reading each other's minds. Yep. Um, and you know this is the thing, and it's basically the same concept applies to cross Tekken because you have two people working together trying to basically play as one.
1: That's right. I mean, it, it's it's great that the game has that feature and it gives you something new to explore in the fighting game space, but. The the price you pay for that of course is the thing that makes fighting game tournaments the, the massive and exciting things that they are, is that any dude can rock up from anywhere and potentially blow things up. Now the the pair play mode doesn't really allow that opportunity as such. And
2: I don't know, um you was I have this feeling I think we had this conversation, Igor, there. Like kind because cross second's kind of not really popping off right now, it's kind of, you know, NCR, the finals were a bit anti-hype. Mm. So maybe this two v two is a way to kinda of create that.
0: The hype? Mm, I, don't know, like. I don't know. I don't to be, to be know. To be honest with you, I don't think cross. I don't think the two v two is actually really the problem. I think more of the problem in general is mm. the timeouts and the way the game plays. The other emphasis was on gems. There was such a controversial topics, <laughs> and they basically become completely irrelevant, minus the That's what gems, the, the assist gems, and the meter building gems, and we can't use them in tournaments.
1: Yeah, yeah, like, and <laughs> uh, not not because they're they're broken it's because Capcom doesn't know how to build a menu exactly to put it bluntly (laughs) I mean it's really sad oh
2: my god how can they do the the button check system so perfect for HDR and you know fuck it up every single game afterwards
1: it's called Capcom USA having one team and Capcom Japan having another it's entirely a Japanese company thing it's entirely down to that unfortunately um I mean, but coming back again to the Evo's decision to do pair play, it's kind of funny because the last time they did a pair play, or last times by memory, I remember they did it for Third Strike, the last year they were in Third Strike, and I have a feeling they did it for Guilty Gear one year as well. You might correct me, though, if I'm making that up. Um, But when they did it for Third Strike, it was because Third Strike was kind of falling to pieces competitively because it was like, you know, six chuns and two yuns on console Third Strike, and it was boring everybody to death. So they went, well, if we do teams, at least we might see you know, a Yang or something for crying out loud. So, so, so they did that, but the, the signal to the community, because that was the, um, they did it when there weren't any other games, right? They were trying to keep the strike line because they needed it. So now the signal people get from that, if they've been following the history, is, oh, Evo has suspicions about the competitive viability of this game. Now, I might be reading too much into it, but as you say, the timeouts, predominantly, are really not helping the situation. I mean, if the game was balanced right these timeouts wouldn't happen as far as I'm concerned. Like, I know that, yeah, the community needs time to find the most damaging comments of that, but these aren't stupid people. They've been playing Street Fighter 4 for three years or whatever. They're on the ball. If there was damage to be got, I think they'd be halfway there by now, but it still doesn't... Like, I watched a random online match between Punko and some other dude, and, I mean, Punko's just... Winning by timeout. Something's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Something wrong with the game. Very much. A very good point. That's a very
2: good point. Yeah. So I guess this um, today's York Street battle will be very interesting to see how the scene develops in Sydney. Mm. Yeah, to see if it mirrors the way it has in Melbourne. Kind yeah. of. Uh, we we had strong um, strong sign ups at the start, and now it's kind of like slowly slowly petering off as people fall out of love with the
0: game.
1: Yeah. Mm.
2: And Skullgirls just came out as well. So.
1: Yeah. Any of you guys checked out Skullgirls?
2: Uh, I have watched it, I have not had time to download or I'll play it.
0: Yeah, I'm in the same boat.
2: Yeah, what about you, Z?
1: I, I mean, I've seen bits and pieces of it. It's probably not something I'll get into because it just kind of doesn't gel with me aesthetically. Be interesting to see how it goes. I think, like, it's got a lot of cards stacked against it, being in the niche that it is. I mean, we know in Australia, especially, you know, niche fighters just are usually stillborn, unfortunately. Who knows? I mean, if, if a lot of people aren't picking up the what should be the mainstream games like Cross Tekken, um, it might be it's time to shine, I don't know
0: yeah mm. so speaking of like mainstream games are you worried about oversaturation of new games
1: coming out yes <laughs> absolutely i think um to me right now the arrival of cross tekken plus a few other companies jumping on board things like kof13 kind of finding legitimacy but not marvel being in a similar boat and a few other things i think i feel like we're back in the late 90s
0: i was just gonna say that yeah it seems to me like we get in the late 90s all over again mm. yeah
1: I, I mentioned that to Stefan the other day and he said yeah we're not quite at that level of of viable games running in parallel, but we're heading that way very, very rapidly. And um, it's kind of, I know, it's good and it's bad. I mean, I love having the variety. Like, I love having Marvel there as a choice because when it was just Street Fighter 4, I kind of felt constrained. But at the same time, what I didn't like back when we were starting uh, tournaments with OzHeadow and we had the three streams, CVS2, MVC2 and Third Strike was the great divide, you know, you struggled to get that bracket above 20 guys and you'd go to a First strike guy and say, Come on, Yun's in CVS2. And like, I'm not touching that stupid game. And <laughs> yeah. and, and, and you get it both in both directions. And Marvel especially was the one that kind of dropped off first because it was so different to everything else. So like it's awesome having the choice, but I still loved the fact that Street Fighter IV did what I thought was impossible after the late 90s, and that was it took everybody who had a range of choice and somehow managed to make them all happy simultaneously for at least a 12 months, roughly. Yeah, but yeah. do you know
0: why that is? It's because there was nothing else besides Tekken.
1: True. It, a, it existed in a vacuum. B, all the games before it were already dead or dying, which helped a lot. I mean, people were so ready to drop Third Strike, in my opinion. And... Um, And it kind of... It tried to tick all the right boxes. Like, it tried to put in something to make SF2 people happy. It tried to put in something for the CVS2. It tried to put in something for kind of everybody at once. I think by the time you got to the end with AE, I felt like the game was just being made to pull in those Third Strike guys that still hadn't given up on Third Strike yet. That's a biased (laughs) perspective. No, no, actually,
0: I probably agree with that. It's like... Yeah, they needed something. The other thing is I think Ono sort of wanted to bring it back to sort of a vanilla flavor where you have a few dominating characters and then the rest of the cast is more like a fan hmm. favorite.
1: Hmm. Which I I don't like I don't know about you guys, but I'm because I come from a Street Fighter two background. When I saw Ryu and Sagat or throwing fireballs at each other 20 in a row in SF4, I had a big smile on my face. Damn it, same here, exactly. I yeah. thought that was fantastic. Everyone around me was saying, this is retarded, why don't they fight? And I'm thinking, <laughs> what are you talking about? This is fighting, this exactly. Is this is perfect. <laughs> and then as we got along, and it was kind of like, mm, you know, they're trying to pull in maybe the, the third strike hanger-ons with the yin and the Yang, and mm, the
2: that nerfing simple. of
1: fireballs, all the buggery, and it's kind of like, okay, but now you've gone and turned me off, because what I came in for, you've kind of gone back the other way sort of thing and I mean I don't I don't know how they strike the balance they seem to have a lot of trouble with it
0: I see I think that's actually a really interesting point that you brought up because when you sort of look at Australia's competitive fighting game scene and you know you being there from pretty much the beginnings a lot of the Australian fighting game scene from what I gather has started off with more of a third strike generation rather than a super turbo generation
1: very much so. In fact, I'll tell you one funny story. After OHN 2, we went back to um, Joey's place and uh, just had some casuals there. We had Melbourne dudes there, Sydney dudes. And um, I. someone brought a Dreamcast and had Super Turbo on it. So we powered it up and I was having a few games. And uh, Jack, Third Strike Jack, who everybody would know from Sydney, walked in the room and he went, Oh my gosh, what is this game? It's so old. What is this? Dude, this is Street Fighter 2. I've never seen this before. <laughs> You're kidding, right? I thought all you people like, were OG like the rest of us. You played Street Fighter. No, Third Strike was my first game. I'm like, oh, that explains a lot. <laughs> now I understand where you people are coming from. But I had no idea that people didn't come from a similar background to myself. I didn't realize a lot of them were like Street Fighter versions when they discovered Third Strike or CVS or things like that.
0: I think it's also because our community is a lot younger than the US community.
1: Yes, very much so. Like, like. there's not a, like, uh, it, It's nice of you to call me OG, but to be honest, like, I'm OG in a vacuum. Like, I played SNES, Street Fighter 2. I very rarely went to arcades. I very rarely played other people. Um, when Osado came into being in 2001, I discovered there were still arcades in the world. I thought they were all dead. I never was part of that Street Fighter 2 tournament culture. If Australia even had a tournament culture of Street Fighter 2, I'm not even aware that it well, did. To that's it was- the
0: thing. They, they, they were never officially tournaments in australia they could have been smaller arcades but not really tournaments at least from the areas that i lived Mm. now the areas that i lived in were melbourne from 92 to like 93 then in sydney from 93 to about 95 and then in geelong and melbourne from 95 to about 98 and in that time i only really attended ever one tournament official tournament which was actually run by blockbuster but that's basically pretty much it. There wasn't really any sort of serious tournament scenes, and I really wish you know if if, if somebody does actually know that they come forward and tell us all about it. Because as mm. far as I was aware, I know there was maybe there could have been tournaments, as in just small arcade-based ones, but they were never advertised anywhere. It was never really, you know, it was never actually. Put up anywhere, yeah. you know. Unlike the American community, where it was, they sort of started off with they had they had nothing until about hyper fighting, and that's when their, their tournament scene actually started.
1: Right, yeah. I mean, it's speaking from the Australian scene, the one guy that was around back in the day that might be worth trying to chase down is um Mike Abdal from virtualfighter.com mm. dot I mean, Iron Mike. Um, Iron Mike, that's him. He uh, um that's he's a, actually st. Yeah, he was an SF2 player, ST. Um, VF is his passion now, but back when Osherdo started, he just come back from a stint working in Canada, playing some CVS over there. And he actually had a good relationship with the Playtime Arcade in Sydney at that time because he was running like virtual on tournaments and things. So when we were trying to get tournaments up and running in Sydney, um, he saw us posting trying to get people for CVS. And he said, oh yeah, I'm... Interested in CVS tournaments? I know guys at Playtime, so I can sort of talk to them and hook you guys up. So he he has all this OG knowledge and experience from within the Sydney scene, and if anybody knows that whether there were tournaments or not back in the day, he'd be the man to talk to.
2: Well, I mean, even here in like here in Melbourne, if you like, who knows about S like for example, if you look at Toxy as OG, like he kind of started with x-men street fighter yeah. right yeah that's true
0: but the thing is yeah like i mean whenever i speak to Tox, he, he said most of the tournaments usually started around 2099 you know and mm. there wasn't really any official tournaments really mm. um it was just people going to arcades and playing and then mm. you know most of i mean at, at least for me i started following the us scene in about 96 through binaries alt.binaries.sf2 and so forth because i was like i was one of the lucky ones to actually have you know a 33k modem <laughs> Wow! And I was, yeah Amazing. and i was hunting news groups <laughs> you know but anyway yeah so you are let's just say a vacuum og so how did osado and ohn start can you give us a brief history
1: yeah i i can and if it's not brief just tell me to get on with it with osado starting it was a bit bit interesting, because as I said, I lived in Wollongong, so I'd sort of given up on arcades. It all shut down here, and I thought that the game was sort of dead and buried. Then I started working in Sydney sort of in 2000, 2001, and I discovered that arcades were still alive and that people even went to them. I was amazed. So when I saw that there was Marvel and things like that, I thought, oh, that's interesting. And um, I'd stumbled across shoryuken.com around that time. And I started reading up about you know, their guide to how to run a double elimination bracket and all this sort of stuff. And I was looking around for Australian players. So I went on the forums and I saw some guys had been talking about playing Marvel in Sydney at the arcade right near where I was studying. So I went, okay, I'll sort of post in here and see if I can hook up with some of these guys. I did that. I didn't get any response from anybody in Sydney, but I got an email from a guy in Canberra by the name of Justin Hoagie, uh, Final Atomic Buster, as you would know him. And he said, "Oh yeah, yeah, I've I've been to Sydney a couple of times playing the arcades. Let, let's let's meet up in the arcades and and, and play some games. It'll be fun." I thought, "Okay, that's not what I expected, but that's exciting. Let's do that." So I met up. So we were talking online a bit before we met, and um, I said to him, "You know, one thing that's always sort of struck me as frustrating is that I found this Shoryuken site, but it's really hard to find Australians on there because it's just an American fest, right?" And I just said, "I wonder if there are other Australian Street Fighter players out there. I wish there was a website where you could find them because I've like." Google for, you know, Australian Street Fighter Club. There's nothing there. Yeah. And he said, um, well, I've got some web space, and I've always wanted to do like a Street Fighter-centric website, but I just didn't have an idea of what I would want it to be. So I said, well, why don't we make a hookup site where just Australians can, where it's just Australians, and they can just say, I play, this is where I am, get at me, I want to play some games. Because this is pre-online play, of course. So we said, okay, well, let's... Well, technically
0: not. We still had Killera. <laughs>
1: Killera in... Yeah, that's a good point because I remember at the time, two thousand-ish, they were still cracking the encryption on CPS two.
0: Yes, I believe CPS two was cracked in either early late ninety nine or very early two thousand.
1: Mm. Um, yeah, because I remember I was so excited when I could play Xbox versus Street Fighter at home. I've been wanting to do that for years. Yeah, so,
0: CPS two shock. I used to troll <laughs> that site every day to see if new
1: ROMs were coming. Yeah, out. I was the same, exactly the same. So, um, but yeah, so anyway, that that was sort of what inspired us to create the site. And then when we were meeting up in in uh, the arcades in Sydney, we bumped into a few Sydney guys. One of them, Stefan Heap, XNDL on the forums, he'd actually been talking to Justin years ago via alt.games.sf2. So they all sort of knew each other. They, they had a chat and I said, do you guys know each other? He's like, only from talking online. And then um, Joey uh, Nguyen was there as well and um, Hebretto, Yang. And uh, so I just started talking to them and said, oh, we're thinking about putting this website together. We kind of need, you know, people to join up and moderators and things. Would you guys be interested all? And I said, yeah, that sounds cool. We kind of get, in, get involved. And um, at the time, I said, to, I'd been reading these guides on um, Shoryuken sure, about how to run double elimination tournaments. Because I'd read, I'd got the old, I don't know if you have this book, but the Hyperfight guide from GamePro.
0: I actually have it. I actually had my mom send it to me from Croatia to here because I missed it because <laughs> I left her home when I moved back to Australia by myself.
1: Nice, very
2: nice. And your mom said yes and she didn't like...
0: She oh, I it. lost it somewhere. No, 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 no. That shit was locked down in the basement with all my other stuff. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah,
1: So, like, I I used to get game pro and things like that back in the day and I'd read about tournaments in the US and I always thought as a, as a teenager, it's like, well, it'd be cool to play in a tournament just to see how good or most likely bad I am because I've never played other people and so I'd read it when I've seen an SRK this article about how to run tournaments and it occurred to me something that well hang on it's not corporations or businesses that run tournaments it's actually the community it's the players yeah, that it's run the people and I went well well, I can do that I mean it's not hard so why don't we, why don't we just try it and see and then the tournament I always wanted to play and I'll be running but at least I'll get one so I said to Yang off the cuff when I was talking about the OzHedo concept oh we might even run tournaments one day and Yang's like no way. You'll never manage to run a tournament. It'll never happen. And from that moment, I went, I'm going to prove you wrong. <laughs> I am going to run a tournament, you sad sack. I'm going to make it happen. And so from there, you know, by the end of um, 2001 in December, we had our first tournaments happening at playtime. And um, it seemed that everybody that was there, unless they were as OG as Mike, was sort of like the first time they'd played in a bracket that was community run. That was for sure.
0: So are you telling me that OHN got started because of
1: SPITE? Of no, the no. <laughs> the local tournament scene in Sydney got started because of spite. The OHN actually got started because of a desire to create an intercity rivalry. Well, I mean, yeah, that's pretty much the end of the story of where Oz a, as a website came from. So it was a dude in Canberra and a dude in Wollongong having an encounter over shoryuken.com. And the next thing you know, there was a website and some local tournaments in Sydney happening. Mm-hmm.
2: Hmm. So this was not the two year ninety
1: nine or two
2: thousand. It was
1: end of two thousand one. December two thousand one. We ran our first ever tournament. So the website came online. I think September of two thousand one.
2: So this, you guys have been doing this for nearly more than ten years by at this more point. More
1: than ten years. Yeah. So. Well, and, this is the tenth
2: year. And how old were you
1: guys when you started? So I was twenty twenty one at the time. Um, Justin's like a year older than me, so pretty much the same age. Um, I and Mike, on the other hand, is like seventy or something. So he's <laughs> he's old. He was an old man from the start. But the rest of the guys, it was quite interesting because like when I ran into Stefan and Joe, that those guys are only in high school. They're only like in their mid-teens at the time. So there were a few dudes from you, Like you had Benson and Yo guy, who was sort of they were more the um the the early uni student kind of age, and then you had sort of more the teenager group. So it was quite a, quite a spread mix of people at the beginning. Well, we were sort of the older older people of, of those days. So so the OHN side of things, so we're doing the locals in Sydney. It was it was quite interesting because we'd we'd recruited some we'd always wanted it to be a national site. It was never meant to be a Sydney site because I mean neither Justin nor I are Sydney centric as such. It was just the closest city with arcades. So we'd actually we're using SRK to kind of tr- trawl around and try and find people that were on there talking about Street Fighter that were from other regions. And we found some guys in Melbourne. Um, at the time the the two that were of most importance were Kechu and Oriku. So, Oric and Kevin were the first two people that we recruited as Melbourne moderators. Having never met them, I might add, we just said, you guys see my like sensible people, would you like to be our mods
3: <laughs> for Melbourne?
1: <laughs> Here are your powers, go nuts. Yeah. So, it, luckily it worked out well. But um, yeah, so we did that and we were sort of, they were kind of keen to get things happening down in Melbourne. So, they put on a CVS2 tournament in the January of 2002, just after we'd done our first ones in City in December. And so Justin and myself and Mike we were all sort of on a high after doing the local Cvs2 tournament. So like, let's go to Melbourne and compete and see how we do. So the three of us trekked down to Melbourne, having never been down there before. Mike had been there before and actually had some friends in the VF community already. So for him, it was a little bit of a normal thing. For Justin and I, it was kind of a bizarre thing to do. But we, we went down there. We met up with the scene. We, Mike did quite well. I think he came second or third. Um, I went to and out and got the living snot beat out of me. And Justin didn't do much better and um, that was a nice reality check. And we, because Johnny had beat Mike so convincingly in the CVS2 finals in Sydney. Uh-huh. So
2: wait, before you go on, so when did Johnny show up in Sydney?
1: So Johnny turned up for the very first CVS2 tournament in 2001. Ah. So, so he was kind of there and him and Mike and a few other guys, like his brother Nin was there in Sydney as well at the time. So they were kind of a clique. They kind of hung around together and practiced at home um, together as well as going out to the arcades. So you had that, that group and they were kind of the top tier group because I mean any group that's training with Johnny is naturally better than everybody else by, by construction. So we're, and we were kind of amazed at how much better than everybody else Johnny was sort of right out of the blocks. And then when we when we went to Melbourne and Mike who'd come second was struggling to stay in top three in Melbourne we thought I wonder what would happen if the best in Sydney and the best in Melbourne we put them together and we see what happens. So we're kind of like you know, let's do it. Let's let's have. Uh, I mean, we called it a national tournament because, as far as we were concerned, we were the entire country at that point in time. So <laughs> Sydney and Melbourne, we were Australia. So that that was how it was going to be. Hmm. But it was literally born out of the desire to have an interstate rivalry between Sydney and Melbourne in CVS two. That was what that was what drove the decision.
0: Hmm. It's mm-hmm. always that fighting game competitive edge, I guess. Yeah.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely.
2: Yeah. So then, what happened next? So I, well,
0: I was going to ask. You know, so. Because, you know, OHN was sort of built on, say, this rivalry, how, how, how has the rivalry changed over
1: the years? It's been very interesting because I know there's been a lot of talk, certainly in the last 12 to 18 months, about the way Sydney and Melbourne get along with each other. Like, there's a lot of talk that, are oh, it was a very close relationship, now it's become a very volatile relationship, and it kind of swings back and forth between these extremes. Um, to be honest, it wasn't any different back then, really. Like They were really happy that we went down there for that first tournament and played, and they were quite enthusiastic about that year about coming up and returning the favour. But it was always sort of seen from that perspective of it was really a tit-for-tat exercise, or that was how people had expected it in Melbourne to turn out. So it was awkward because when Melbourne came up for OHN – it was very good competition. Kevin came second behind Johnny in CVS2, but he convincingly won third strike. And he, being the competitive man that he is, he wasn't happy about coming second in CVS2. So he walked away going, I'm going to come back and I'm going to destroy this man, Johnny, in the next one. So... <laughs> We're all really excited. IHN 2 came like hot on the heels of the first one because of all the hype. So it was kind of like only six months later, which turned out to be a bad idea in hindsight. But anyway, <laughs> we, we, we did it and Kevin got his revenge and again won first strike convincingly and that was all good. And then, um, you know, there's there already been a bit of tension because of some people shooting their mouths off online. Um, but the the turning point came when we kept, I kept trying to encourage the guys in Melbourne, you know, We need a major in Melbourne to offset the one in Sydney because if we're going to get some exchange here, some mutual flow, we need you guys to have an event that we can come to so that you don't feel like you're always doing the work. Yeah, you're always
0: on on, on enemy ground.
1: Yeah, that's right. And I mean, obviously for them, it's no, no small thing when they're uni students or whatever to put down the money to go up for a weekend in Sydney, cover all their expenses. Not so, to mention
0: that flights back in those days weren't cheap. Jetstar oh yeah. wasn't around.
1: <laughs> That's right. So it was um it was a non-trivial exercise for a lot of gamers to do it. And so um, but it started to rub people the wrong way that Sydney guys weren't going down to Melbourne, especially when Melbourne was winning all the trophies. So Melbourne would come, they'd win, and they're like, why should we come up and challenge you? We are the champions. You should be coming and challenge us. It's like, and the tournament we would challenge you at is, where is it? And they're like, we, can't, we have no venue. We have no suitable place. We don't have the resources we can't do. And it's like, well, that's not a good enough answer. You know, we, you need to give these guys a battleground. Otherwise, they have no reason to come. And Sydney, traditionally, it's changed since the Street Fighter 4 generations come along. But traditionally, they were a very low travel community. They didn't go anywhere. They were very local centric. We've got the most people. We've got the venue where it happens. We've got Ozzie do doing stuff for us. We don't have to go anywhere. We're just going to sit here. And if you care, you'll come to us, kind of even if we're not the best. And that was what kind of rubbed the Melbourne guys the Wrong way during the first strike period, it kind of changed a bit. Some guys were actually made an effort to go down to Melbourne and say, We acknowledge Thirst Strike is the best in Melbourne, has the best Thirst Strike players. Um, so we're going to come down here and pay our dues if we want you to then come back to <laughs> OHN, sort of thing. <laughs> and that kind of helped, but certainly the the Ketchu era was very much around the we're better than you, why do we have to travel up to where you are, kind of thing. And and it, it did make it every OHN from like Six back was a political nightmare trying to negotiate to get people from Melbourne, who are our most important competitors, to turn up. It was a real struggle.
2: That's really interesting. And that, that kind of like makes me realize the disconnect between that generation in Melbourne and this generation. Kind of.
0: You mean the current generation? The current generation. Which of, is also yeah. basically built with the older generation, but with now a lot more young blood. In yeah, but well. yeah, uh, please go on.
1: Because I guess if I was to look at generations in Melbourne and the, the sort of attitude towards um, traveling to compete and coming to Sydney compete and what have you, there's the Ketsu generation and then I see the Toxie generation. They're the sort of two eras for me. Like to- Toxie has the attitude of he just wants to play and he, he will go wherever there's a good chance to play a good chance to compete and where he can sort of test himself. He, he doesn't care if he's already better than the people there. He's happy to go up there and, and take the title again and again because he just wants to play. Whereas... Yeah, whereas Kevin was more, I'm only going to go if I think that I'm going to really be tested. And like if I'm already the king of the hill, then I've got nothing more to prove. So um, I don't see why I should come back kind of thing. That's not to say they didn't come back, but it, it meant that you were kind of dealing with that kind of attitude out of the gates when you were trying to encourage people to come. Mm. It's
0: more dethrone me and then... Mm. And yeah. then I will fly up to get get it back.
1: Yeah. That's right. Exactly. Mm.
2: So that, that was OHN 6, right? So when yeah.
1: Yeah, OHN o- o- 6 was kind of. Oh, that was the first time Street Fighter. F- no, that was the last time before Street Fighter 4. Because that was, that was the year Justin Wong came out.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, can you, do you want to talk a little bit about how that happened?
1: Oh, yeah. That, that's very interesting, actually. Um, OHN 5, I don't know how much you know about OHN 5, but Justin Wong was supposed to come to OHN 5. That was the grand plan that. Um, I don't know if you guys know Dane McDonald, TSC at all. Nope. Uh, no, no. He was actually. When, when Playtime closed down in Sydney. He was the guy who provided the cabinets at Mae Chan that kept the Third Strike scene in Sydney alive. So that was after OHN 4, basically. So he kind of was heavily involved in organizing OHN 5 because it was his cabinets, the First Strike community wouldn't play on anything but arcade. At OHN 4 we'd run it on console and they just didn't turn up. So he was willing to provide the cabinets to ensure that and do a lot of the organization. And part of what he was organizing was he was, he was talking to Triforce of Empire Arcadia to try and get him to bring a bunch of guys, primarily Justin Wong, but other guys too, to OHN5 to make some big international kind of thing happen. Well, his mistake was that he was talking to Triforce, of course. So Triforce promised him the world and delivered nothing, unsurprisingly. (laughs) Yeah, I heard Um,
0: something about like a private jet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Triforce was
1: talking out of his backside and none of what he said made any logistical sense whatsoever. But um, the worst part about it, like it had its pros and cons. Like, the, The good thing was the community was really forgiving. Like, we, we told them, we advertised this would be Empire Arcadia invading Australia, and none of that happened. And yet, most people kind of sucked it up and said, Yeah, well, it would have been nice, but we've still got the best players from Melbourne and Sydney for third strike here, and it's still a kick ass tournament. We're happy. Then you had the other camp of people, and it was very small, um, who felt legitimately like they'd been gypped. The main, there was only really one person I'd say that I felt really bad about, and that was Oric from Melbourne, who had moved to Japan already by that time. Um, he had the choice to either go to Evo that year or come to OHN. Having come to OHN every year from one to three when he was living in Melbourne, he chose to come to OHN five because he thought that empire was coming because he wanted to defend Australia's honor against the American sort of thing. And when that didn't happen, he was not a happy man and rightly so. Um, it's cause he would spent all these holidays and money on coming back to Sydney for the umpteenth time instead of going to Evo for the first time. So he got really mad. Um, and I totally felt horrible about it. And um, in the end, he had a great time, and he really enjoyed catching up with the Melbourne players and being on their team and supporting them in the f- top eight and everything. Um, and they, it all kind of went away in the end, but it was a pretty kind of ugly outcome of it. Um, anyhow, the, 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 getting back to where that led to with JustHong on OHN6, um, because that all kind of fell apart, we came in OHN6 and everything, to put it bluntly, going to OHN6 was dead. Tekken wasn't doing well. Third Strike was dying. Nothing was going well. Everything was kind of stuffed. So we're looking at an OHN 6 that nobody cared about. So I we thought, well, this isn't good.
0: So well, which year was OHN 6?
1: It's Probably oh seven. yeah. They were kind of, yeah. I think it would have been 2007. So it's kind of just before SF4 turned up in the arcade sort of thing, like about six months, 12 months before that. Um, so you literally had nothing anybody cared. The thing was, Third Strike in Australia was killed by SBO, to put it... <laughs> politely, um, because we finally sent teams to SBO after sort of OHN 5, they, they got the living snot beat out of them, more or less, and um, played a lot of casuals over there, had a great time, but 80% of the people who went, or 90% of the people who were hardcore, quit afterwards because they just realized that the... The,
0: the skill difference, yeah. The
1: mountain was too high. Mm. They had no idea how high it was mm. until they went there and realized, okay, this is not going to happen. So a lot of them just quit outright, or even though they went on maybe to play Street Fighter 4, they became a lot more casual. That hardcore tournament mindset just kind of was burnt out of them. Third Strike, they were trying to send a team to SBO for Third Strike that year as well. But after things that had kind of gone not quite right, it all kind of fell apart. And um, we told them we were sending a team for Third Strike. We didn't. Uh, we got into a lot of... Th- yeah. Australia got into a lot of trouble.
2: I heard I heard quite a bit about that. Do you want to talk about that?
1: Um, I won't talk about it in detail because I wasn't really involved. But all I, all I know is that... Um, SBO doesn't take kindly to being told X months beforehand that you're not sending a team when they've already put out promo material. So the response... And the Japanese are very sort of single-minded. This kind of you're in or you're out sort of thing. So once you're out, and if you're out on bad terms, you're out, like you're out of the circle of trust, so to speak. We're not going to talk to you anymore. So Australia, Tekken, fortunately, has maintained a good relationship. But Third Strike, we I don't think anything would get a team back in a Third Strike. I might be wrong. There might be people who can work magic. Um, other Street Fighter, I don't know. But no one sort of tried or has had the passion or the interest to try I, it might change who knows but well um, so
0: would oz Hado or Chan be interested in hosting another sbo qualifier
1: it'd take the right people to sort of do the organizational side of it. i know that i'm um, bryce sayuk from the tekken community um whenever he's organizing tekken he does sort of politely say look would you like street fighter on the cards would you like me to talk street fire to them but on the condition that somebody takes responsibility and you guarantee me that you'll go sort of thing Um, the good thing is the community hasn't made the same mistake twice they haven't stepped up and said yeah we'll do it and then flaked again so they've actually done a bit of soul searching and gone well yes we're there yes there's a team that'll go or no honestly we can't we're better off just stepping back and waiting for our time to come i mean they've taken a lot of maturity in response to what happened which is good um I I think in time it might happen and now that SBO is moving to console and it might be having a second wave into the future in terms of how it works anything could happen but um
2: that is really interesting actually the console um,
1: well the
0: other thing that I heard was I heard rumors that this might be the last SBO ever yeah so there's there's quite a few interesting things happening with SBO and I
2: heard they're doing double a limb in the top 8 of Street Fighter 4 yeah exactly really really un-SBO like things Mm.
1: that's very interesting I hadn't heard about that one yeah
0: but. Yeah, there seems to be lots of rumours. Um, I mean, I, has Marvel 3 been confirmed for us? It, has.
2: it
1: has? Yes, it has, yes. yeah. Marvel 3 and Soul Calibur 5 right. are the two console games by memory.
0: So, I mean, with Marvel 3, if they're going to run a one-game single-a-limb... No. <laughs> yes, come on. Like a really? coin-costing you know, competition, that
1: would be just, as, exact.
0: <laughs> just exactly. as
1: accurate in terms of the outcome.
2: Oh, uh, <laughs> man. <laughs> single-a-limb Marvel. That, that would be the most... Ridiculous tournament of all time.
1: it also be the
0: most salting tournament of all time. <laughs> you flew 17 yeah. hours for one game, you, yeah. got, you got randomly X-Facted yeah. by Dark West. It's Star. like I said before, the happiest of birthdays.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it'll, it'll be interesting to see because, um, I don't know, it's, the thing that makes it very hard with SPO is because it's actually a corporate-run event. Damn, yeah.
0: Exactly. It's Arcadia Magazine, I believe. Yeah.
1: Exactly. And then with all the various corporate companies using it as a vehicle to promote, or historically it was a vehicle to promote your latest arcade fighting game, which is how the lineup was chosen. Um, it's kind of, it's tried to keep a bit of OG roots and it's mixed it up over the years. But um, that's always been its primary purpose. But because it's run by corporates, there's, that disconnect, excuse me, between the, the community's vibe of what's going on with it, because games aren't necessarily picked on for reasons that we would pick them. So they, And the, the event itself isn't run for reasons that we would run it. So as a result, we're not in direct communication with the people doing it. They're not part of our clique, so to speak. So when I say our, I mean the entire global competitive Community scene. So they, they kind of do their own thing. I mean, it's a bit the same with what Capcom's plans are sort of this year with the cross tech and tournaments they're, they're backing. There's a lot of whispers and talk, and no one really knows what's going on there. But um, because they're corporate, you know, we probably won't know until they throw the cards on the table it's just sort of it, it, when we're, we're not used to being so far outside the loop of tournaments because for so long it's all been on us personally to make it happen
0: now that we know a little bit more about you know how ohn and Osado happened um what's the actual mission statement of ohn or Osado? sorry
2: but don't you want to know about um the street fighter 4 era like right i do just but along?
0: um the, the thing is it's i think it's more important to get the mission statement first because right. I, the, the one thing that i kind of get confused a little bit about Osado is it seems at least these days, it seems very Sydney-centric from a certain view. For example, the r r c channel is mainly Sydney people. Yep. Um, I don't know why that is, but maybe it's a historical thing. But yeah, so so what's actually like the, the also statement. those mission statement? Like, yeah. what do you guys is is, it, is is it still as it was back in two thousand when you first came up with it, or has have things changed? Or
1: it's hard for me to answer that, being the only man on the line, because I've for the most part divested a lot of control as to what its mission is now so I mean when it was founded Justin and I as I said our our intention was it wasn't even tournaments at first it was just a a meeting point on the web for Australian fighting game players but Street Fighter inclined because that was what we liked to play Um, or Capcom inclined at least then once it became about tournaments as well it was more so the tournaments were seen as a vehicle to bring people together I guess rather than being separate to the to the concept as time went by, I mean, we always tried to involve other states, but it just seemed very hard to achieve like a national team, no, no matter how hard you tried, whether it's just the distance made it hard or I guess, because it's a hobby and it's not a business, it's really hard to kind of bring people in and say, look, we need you to commit to doing this much stuff to represent your area to this degree so that everybody feels involved. I mean, ultimately, it's a hobby people put in how much time they feel obliged to put in. And um Early on, we were very – for our own sort of fear that things might blow up on us in a bad way, we were sort of very um, rigid in terms of who we would let have this amount of power and all this kind of stuff. So it was kind of we're at the top of the pyramid and nothing happens unless we say so. And I mean, that works if you're involved a lot. But because both of us were living far away from Sydney – and, you know, so you're far away from the closest scene, then you're even further away from everybody else. So it kind of doesn't end up naturally evolving to create that national focus that you just sort of always had in mind. So what happened was because Sydney was the closest and they were people that we knew directly, they kind of were trusted a bit more to do more within the site. So they became the voice more than anything else, or the active component. And the others were always sort of seen more like an SRK kind of thing where they were using it as a vehicle to tell the world they were out there. Right, right. More so than directly contributing. So, sort of. I mean, OHN as the primary event that OzHado organizes. Um, It's run by Sydney people because it's in Sydney, but a a Sydney team evolved because people wanted to sit down and talk about what the plans were kind of thing. It wasn't natural to sort of plan it over long distances with people sort of thing.
0: And to also be fair, though, um, as far as I know, the Sydney community, at least from, say, an outsider's perspective, because I wasn't that involved in the fighting game community in general, but the Sydney scene always seemed to have, the strongest or I'd say the most competitive co- competitive people and then Melbourne was always second.
1: In my time from 2001 on, there was never any doubt in my mind that the best players in the country were in Melbourne. Like, I mean, with the exception of Johnny, Melbourne had the best players and Johnny couldn't even stay ahead of them all the time. Like Kevin on his best day would defeat Johnny. I mean, that's just straight up. And Auric on his best day was able to defeat Johnny as well come OHN3. So, it was... They had a different training mindset. Like, Johnny works really well considering he's basically working in a vacuum at his level. Like, he doesn't have anybody else at his level or didn't have in City. He's gone now. But when he, when he was there, he was kind of, you know, just beating down on everybody else because no one was challenging him. He, he had to challenge himself to become as good as he was. And it's big credit to him for doing what he's done. Um, but... Sydney always had the critical mass. Crit- Sydney had the volume of players mm. and it also had yeah, the no. nice of venues. Like you walk into playtime or whatever and you didn't have to worry about the guy trying to sell drugs behind you kind of thing. It was, oh, it was a... Oh, con- oh, White House. It was, yeah, it was like, you know, when I went down to Melbourne Arcades for the first time, it was a bit of a culture shock. It's kind of like, I don't know if this is really where I want to be, to be honest. Like, <laughs> I, I want to play these games, but I don't know if this is the atmosphere for me. So, um, and that, that held them back in a lot of ways in terms of developing community. And while... The Street Fighter 4 years allowed them to sort of... The beautiful thing about Melbourne is that this belief that this we cannot attitude that permeated during the arcade days has gone away now and it's a we can attitude of we can get the people together, we can get our own venues, we can buy our own gear, we can do our own stuff, yeah. has transformed the Melbourne Sea in a fantastic way. Yeah, a lot of um, the
2: shadow of optimism that has really permeated Exactly, this
1: exactly. I mean, don't get me wrong, it took the right people at the right place for a time. Like, um, you needed the commitment and the time to do it and the passion to do it. It's not just going to, yes, it can be done, but the, the right people need to be there to make it happen. But... Um, I still get the feeling that in Melbourne there's um, a lot of constraints at the local level. Like Sydney, the YSB situation has just turned out miraculously well because not only has um, York Street provided a large venue for our chance, it's provided the smaller venue for the local events at a reasonable price for both, which is just a miracle. I mean, it's very rare that you get that combination. Yes, as, and
2: as we, as the cultural staff, very well know, <laughs> yeah, absolutely, getting a venue price is a pain
1: in the really hard. Yeah, yeah. so. So the fact that that's panned out for them has just been golden, um, whereas Melbourne sort of seems to have struggled to find, like, uh, the you don't need a one-size-fits-all venue, but just a venue at the local level, at least, where it, it can be consistently at the right price for the size scene we have, and we can use it consistently. And it's convenient for everybody as well. That's the miracle of YSB, is that it happens in the city. Um
2: well, I mean, um, with Shaloo Night Live, we have it in Crown Casino now, and I think um, oh, right. the Shalulu guys want to make that sort of like the center, the weekly, the 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 local level kind of everyone gets to go kind mm. of thing. So,
0: and then we have the casual, casuals once a fortnight, yeah. which is Chris's Clubhouse, yeah, not CCH.
2: But I mean, I guess Ziggy does have a point that our venues are kind of broken up and spread out. Where some, um,
0: yeah, well, I mean, Collingwood's not that far away from the city. That is true. Yes, yeah. um, and. Yeah, the only real distance one that was Deacon a while ago because that was way out. Or when
2: Carl Torres <laughs> was in Box Hill, or when uh, SNL was in Brunswick,
3: or
0: yeah, uh, I mean, yeah, we've had a bit of an issue, but it seems now that things have stable. Or have calmed down a lot more. Mm. SNL seems to be every week in Crown, mm. CCH is every fortnight, mm-hmm. and those two seem to be the two main
2: main. And in fact, our our one issue, very interesting issue that we have now is actually perhaps we have event oversaturation. We we mm. currently have SNL every week, and then we have Christmas Clubhouse every fortnight, and we have Box Hill Beatdowns every fortnight, and we have uh, Southeast Throwdown, and we have Mm. Impact over in Werribee. I think that's every uh, that's ten events a year, and then we have yeah. So (laughs) 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 Um, I mean, personally, I've noticed that attendance has been dipping slightly. I think people are might might get burnt out. So it's kind of a really yeah, as you say, it's like a really big shift in the Melbourne. Mm.
1: Out of curiosity, what what do you guys think is actually fueling that large range of events spread out? As far as it a geographical thing, or is, is it a- It's
2: partially there. Like for impact and southeast Throwdown, it's people that for um for impact, the dudes that live in Werribee, it's really hard for them to come down to the city to, for the central events, so they decided to run their own events out in the west. Mm. And couch warriors, as kind of, uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of it is geographical, and some of it is you know we just struggle to just find. Whatever venue we can get at a price, we'll just run it there, kind of thing.
0: And you know, I've had numerous amounts of people go to me. Well, when's Deacon starting up again? Because yeah. you know, it, it was on the other side of the city. Yeah, and we had a lot of people going. <laughs> yeah, around that area, that area, it's like, well, Deacon was great. All I do was five minute drive, and I'm yeah. there for the entire day. <laughs> people are
2: lazy. Like they won they want many events everywhere. You know, like five minutes yeah. from them, and they'll just go to that one and screw the one over the other side of the city.
0: Well, I mean, yeah. it's also pretty hard because it's. I mean, Melbourne's public transport. Is semi okay, but if you want to stay up late or late anyway, you have to drive. Yes, that's true. Yeah. So
2: a car is needed to be a fighting game player.
0: Yeah, but it's also a pain in the ass because if, for example, if an event starts at six o'clock, well then you have peak hour traffic to deal with. oh yeah, that's true. Which is basically even worse in Sydney, for example, because Sydney does peak hour traffic,
1: and <laughs> 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 I, I don't know. No, it's just yeah. It's well, horrible Sydney traffic
0: in you know in from the eighteen months that I lived in there from, you know, like 2007 to two thousand, late 2008. Mm. Um, yeah, it was, you had selective times where you would drive, otherwise you're stuck in gridlock.
1: Well, that's one, yeah, that's one thing I found. If I, if I went to stay back in the city for an event or whatever, I would not want to leave there until like eight o'clock at night when I knew there would be no cars anymore so I could have the 90-minute run home instead of the two-hour plus run home. So...
2: But yeah, I mean, going back to York Street Battle, I mean, I think it's a good time to ask about kind of like the rise of the new OHN, the kind of like the, the added responsibility that guys like Gomogo and Spencer have taken up and kind of like, I guess, uh, FAB is looking to step back a little bit. And
1: Yeah, it's been an interesting kind of transition because our, Evo APAC was kind of the kick to the groin, so to speak, that caused people to start to change their minds about things because Evo APAC was such a monster of a thing. Like it, it was only one game and Daigo was the only real centerpiece around which everything had to revolve. But
2: Daigo changed um, everything. <laughs>
1: he changed it. I was like, at first, it was just a local event with Evo slapped on it. And then, like, you know, we get a call from Seth Killian. And it's like, you know, this dude Daigo just didn't qualify over here in France or whatever Evo. So he asked me if there's anywhere else. And I happen to know of your event. It's like, oh, good. Thank you, Seth. This is awesome. And yet, painful at the same time. So because <laughs> so, we're looking at, because unfortunately, I mean, the reality is, is, um, people can hype all they want international dudes but the reality is there's two sides of the coin there's the budget yes. and, the, and effort and there's the um the opportunity cost sort of thing so you're looking to go daigo you, literally within the team of evo apac when this thing was put on the table you had two camps you had one camp going it makes no sense to spend all that money on daigo's plane ticket and then you had the other group saying it makes no sense to give up the opportunity to have daigo in sydney and and it's takes time to reconcile that and work out where you're going to meet sort of halfway. I mean, in the end, where it gets met is usually you say, my budget can't cope with this. If you can externalize the funding, we'll do it sort of thing. So in the case of um, Daigo, it came down to community donations, funded his trip. The, the tournament budget couldn't hold him. We couldn't provide to, we couldn't, pr- we were funding a ticket to Evo. When Daigo came on the cards, we knew we had to fund a second ticket to Evo, otherwise Australia was not going to Evo. So... We just suddenly picked up an extra cost before you look at Daigo flying to Australia. So you had to say to yourself, well, someone's got to find some money somewhere. So in the end, between community donations and the guys who own the GG's cabinets, Josh and Kevin, coming on board as sponsors to cover that cost, it just wouldn't have been possible. For what it's worth, Evo APEC, I think, made a small loss in the end, which was pretty amazing considering sending two people to the U.S., and trying to get Daigo on board, which is tiny compared to the budgets they have to budget uh, balance for Shadow Loose Showdown. Like, yeah, and, we'll get,
3: and we'll
2: get to that, but yeah, continue with... with what mm. But
1: about. yeah, so EVO APAC was a bit exhausting. The team for EVO APAC was built around existing friendships rather than who was the best man for the job. And the consequence of that was people came to the table uh, with different expectations around what they would have to deliver. Like, what I thought people would deliver was on what thought they would have to do, etc. So when it all kind of ended... It was a big. It was probably one of the most successful events we've ever done, in Sydney. But on the organisational side of it, there was a lot of friction and um, frustration for me, anyway. So um, I sat down with Justin afterwards and said, "Look, I know we promised everybody we'd do an Evo, a and OHN in the same year, but I just can't do another one of these in the next six months. Not after what just happened. I need away time." And he said, "Yeah, I'm. I'm, I'm feeling that. That sounds fine." So we decided that we long term wanted to get people more involved with running OHN rather than just us at the top of the pyramid. So we said, okay, let's identify a team of people who have vested interest in OHN succeeding from either a community or a financial perspective. And we'll put them together and say, OHN oh, 9 is your baby, make it happen kind of thing. Um, we'll we'll give you advice on that, but we want you to make it happen. So we put together a team of four people. Um, and as you would have remembered with OHN, 9 there was a lot of delays and rescheduling. And um, eventually it happened, but it wasn't, the the plan, the people doing it weren't aiming for the same bar that Fab and I would have aimed for, if you know what I mean. So um, it was kind of, it worked out and a lot of people who went to the event felt it was quite well run, but I mean, it was smaller than normal too. So it's often easier to succeed under those conditions. So, But that was kind of the first part. Your question was, when do we sort of start to pull back? And I'd say the post-Evo APAC, that was where we sort of started to try and find other people to take a lot of the burden. Because with us being so far away from it, like, during that time, I wasn't playing Street Fighter four anymore, Justin really wasn't playing Street Fighter 4 anymore we're not competitors anymore we're not even really casual players anymore to a large degree and we're not involved with the forums on a daily basis so we're not in touch with the community either and we're kind of in my opinion that makes us the worst people for the job because you need to be in touch with the community to do this stuff properly that's how I feel
2: as well but yeah Yeah. Mm. and yep so then after Evil Apex you felt that you needed to restructure the system and who's, who, who stepped up
1: so we, we approached four people we approached um, Eric DK uh, because he'd been running his own events out in Western City. he actually come to me beforehand said he was interested in being involved in organizing an OHN if there was ever an opportunity. So since he'd obviously had the credentials and the experience it made, with his own stuff, it made sense to sort of tap him on the shoulder. Plus he had his own gear already. Um, we picked Jack as a community representative because he'd been running the Street Fighter Four stuff at GG's and helping out with OHNs anyway. Um, it turned out to be bad timing for Jack, and in the end sort of Henry kind of stepped in to fill his shoes because he had to step back. But we had a, a position there for a community guy. And then we had um, Kevin Josh from GG, since it was their cabinets that were being used for OHN. It felt, well, it made sense for them to sit on the committee and make the plans. Now, the idea was that that team of four would run the event, but what actually happened was um, Jack slash Henry weren't really the right people to manage things at that level or weren't in a position to do so. And Kevin and Josh were really not comfortable doing it at that level. They were more comfortable just providing the cabinets on a, as a business kind of arrangement. So you really only had Eric driving it. And it was and it was probably too much for one man to do. And his goal was really just to get it over the line sort of thing. And as a result, it kind of... I felt like OHN, when it ran heading first into SS, it was always going to be uh, a low Anyway, but like I felt like it still could have realized the niche as like being the first Australian nationals for Marvel, but like no one seemed interested in really pushing that agenda. And as such, it then turned out to be so low key. While people came on, like Spencer in particular, came on board to design the website, and then he started helping out with more stuff just because. He could see that there were holes that needed to be filled. So he started filling these holes and doing what he could. He did a fantastic job in the end to keep things on track. And when it was all done and dusted, he said, look, I'm interested in being involved in the future, but I would like to assemble my own team. I want to build from the ground up. I said, well, that's cool because it doesn't seem like the guys who are on board for the first time are all that keen to come back. So go for it. See what you want to do. So he and Shane had actually put their heads together. They'd already started to take on board some of the Ozzetto website responsibilities because Justin and I were looking for people in that space, and both of them have sort of web design skills, Shane in particular, and Spencer's on the ground of the community. He's the guy who's still playing sort of thing, so he's in touch with everything. So they they were stepping up as admin, so it made perfect sense for them to sort of just also become the OHN drivers, and they sort of built a team to make OHN 10 happen.
2: And then in that also, um, they also became the primary drivers behind York Street Battle, right?
1: Exactly, yeah. So in fact, their, their first step when they stepped up was – to make YSP, Spencer said to me very clearly when he took over from um, po- activities post OHN9. He said, "My primary goal is to fix the Sydney scene because mate. Um, sorry, not mate. GGs had closed.
2: Oh yeah, there was a big GGs issue. Um.
1: Yeah. So they, we'd been kicked out. of GGs. We had no venue. The scene was basically on the brink again, just like they were back playtime closed. So they said, look, we found rooms at York Street that we can do locals in. We want to. We want to bring the Sydney scene back from the brink and save.' So that was their job. So they spent the next three or four months just focused on Sydney and doing that. Um, and that, you ask, why is it Sydney-centric? I mean, when you've got the only two guys that are admins totally yeah. focused in the Sydney scene, of course that's going to be their primary focus. So, so that's what they were, were doing. And when it became clear that there was interest from the teching community to get the o- next OHN happening, um, and they were interested in sort of realising it, and they invited me to be involved and help out and Justin. Once they got their head straight on doing the YSB stuff, that was when they start to look at planning OHN 10.
2: It was a training for OHN, basically.
1: Pretty much, yeah. It was sort of getting their sea legs, so to speak. And it was also um, a, it's a financial inventory thing too because they used the YSBs to fund the hardware that was needed to run an OHN because we knew OHN 9 didn't have enough gear and it was not acceptable to rely on community to bring stuff because you can't at a serious major tournament rely on the community for all the gear. So... They use the YSB because historically the the function was you went to GGS, you paid your money, GG split that with Kevin Josh who had some consoles there and the cabinets there, and the money was all on that side of the fence. So the community paid their way to use the space. Now with YSB situation and with also guys running it rather than external um, third parties, you've got guys who say, we'll charge you this much, it pays for the venue and anything we get extra, we'll use to fund hardware, we'll use to fund stuff the community needs. To make these events bigger and better. Spencer's goal was very clear. He said, I want to create a BYO stick local environment for Sydney. I don't want them to bring monitors. I don't want them to bring consoles. I want to provide all that for them. I just want them to walk in with a TE under their arm and be ready to play. So he knew financially what he had to do to get that done. And he and Shane have worked very hard and done a fantastic job and have enjoyed a lot of support support from the Sydney scene. Um, Because numbers blew up once we started running at Wyeth. We... The reason why GG's was always stagnant was that the physical room couldn't cope. Like the one time we had 60 dudes turn up in summer for a Street Fighter 4 tournament at the event, there was a huge fallout with GG's afterwards because they had magic tournaments that night. They couldn't have 60 Street Fighter dudes in the room. It just doesn't suit their business model. So the events were always capped at GG's, not officially, but physically you went there and if it was more than so many people you felt uncomfortable the staff weren't happy that you were there the magic players weren't happy that you were there there was a bit of friction Um, it was a discouraging environment ysb is the opposite we want to fill the room with street fighter players that's all we're here to do Um, and if we ever have too many we'll try a bigger room so it's kind of it's a completely opposite instead of being constrained it's now Arms wide open for as much growth as we can take, and the Sydney community has wanted to grow for years. This is the first chance they've had, and they've embraced it. That's mm.
2: amazing. Like, uh, just, bef- I mean, uh, um, everyone should remember that this is a community, and it's based on the passion of people. Like you know, like this is their hobby, and no one pays them to do it. And it's amazing that things like that can happen because of the passion of dudes like Spencer and
3: Shane.
1: I guess as well, like to contrast that with the Melbourne situation when you've got tons of events but spread out a lot and people feeling a bit oversaturated and things. Um, Shane and Spencer have been petitioned by the community to make the events more frequent because at GG's, they were like weekly at one point or fortnightly, depending. Um, And there was always a sense of people felt the events were a little bit disposable. It's kind of like, ah, I can miss this one. There's always next week kind of attitude. So they said, look, these rooms aren't cheap. And if we're going to buy all these consoles and monitors, we can't be going out backwards on an event. You need to feel like if you miss this, you miss out kind of thing. So I said, people have said to them, I want fortnightly. And they've just said straight into their faces, no, you're not getting fortnightly. People have said, we want it a little bit more frequently. So so we'll run it. We won't wait four weeks. We'll run three weeks. And then we'll run five the next one. And just see how you respond. Well, numbers are usually down. So they've gone, nope keep it four weeks apart. People people are always keen right up until the point they have to turn up. <laughs> then, then, you, then you know who's really keen. And it's got, it's, it's the OH2 mistake. We, uh, sorry, OHN2 mistake we made. Everyone was so keen after OHN. Said, yep, six months, let's do it. Numbers were down. It's kind of people devalue it the more often it is yes
2: um, exactly i i, I agree 100 percent. but um there's two sides of the coin you can definitely argue that you know the frequency devalues the event but on the other hand having a regular place to grind and develop is really good for the community
0: as it's well. not even that it's also about consistency as well mm. if you have something which is on consistently people will get it into their routine and then mm. they'll just fit their lives around it exactly
1: yeah
0: and, yep. yeah
1: I mean, the one downside of YSB is that they haven't been able to lock it into like the X saturday of the month, like always the first, always the second. But they're kind of at the mercy of whatever's already booked in at York Street. So they, they book them months in advance, actually. They actually make their reservations way in advance, so they know they'll have a room. But unfortunately, they kind of just got to move it around a little bit.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, this is one thing that I really loved about Couch Warrior as well. It was at the... The, what was the marriage place?
2: The, 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 the convent, the Abbotsford yeah, convent. Yeah,
0: see, that was first Saturday of every month. You know where you're going.
2: Yeah, God was looking down
0: on you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and we get random drunk people walking in on, in yes. on us and seeing <laughs> what Price the hell mates. are these people doing <laughs> <Yeah>. here. <laughs> no, but, but that aside, no, that was really good. because, mm. And, you know, in that sort of 2010 era you know we had the four-week schedule yeah
2: and we had we had consistent attendance at couch warriors
0: no we had consistent attendance at everywhere we had consistent Mm. attendance at cch we had consistent attendance at couch warriors we had consistent attendance at deacon Mm. and actually deacon actually grew a lot over that last one where we almost had where i was thinking about getting a second room because Mm. we were just full especially during the summer but anyway, um, yeah, I think consistency is probably one of the most important things basically in everything, mm. in, in these sorts of community-based events is mm. because people will get it into their routine.
2: Mm. Well, it's not just that. Probably Arcade Edition, Yunnan Yang version kind of killed interest for some people <laughs> as well. So there's a lot of factors. It's yeah, not but just, Marvel
0: yeah. also was out. And mm. Yeah, so actually, speaking of OHN, so why did OHN make a decision to go fully pre-reg and BYOC then?
1: On the pre-reg side of things, um, we actually did that for EVO APAC. So it wasn't like we hadn't done that before. Um, in fact, it, OHN 9 wound back the clock again because it wasn't Justin and I calling the shots there. So it was kind of wound back in that direction. When we came to OHN 10, I mean, Spencer and Shane were on board with it in general. But I just said, look, if I'm pressing the registrations, I want pre ready because I can't do the brackets properly if I have to deal with it on the day. It's just not worth the hassle. I, I, so, I also
2: agree. pre read is like basically the only thing you, <laughs> you need. You need that for brackets, basically.
1: Like To, to, to be honest, I... If you want to ask the, whether or not it hurt us in terms of people missing out, absolutely people missed out. And I'm sure some people were cheesed off and might not come back because of it. But um, I mean, at the end of the day, you really have to draw a line in the sand if you're serious about doing this as professionally as you can. Like, I know it's just a hobby thing and it's just a community thing. But I mean, we've got the gaming press's attention now, we've got corporate's attention to some degree. Um, We can't keep kind of you know stuffing around with this. Now's the time to kind of get it right. Go go back to OHN one. Like if I said period only, I would have had nobody in the bracket. You know, it's like that's that was the the times. But now uh, it's a different generation. It's a different attitude. Um, Everyone's kind of hooked in through the websites and the online side of the community now you're not dealing like back then you were running tournaments your nationals were in the arcade where the casuals were played you were relying on walk-in traffic to make the bracket look okay it's it's totally different if you're at a, if you're at your a venue that's not an arcade foot traffic just isn't even in the equation i don't even understand why that's part of your business model anymore i mean it just doesn't make any sense i mean and the thing is too you got to ask yourself when you run a bracket why are you running a bracket are you just is it Is it just for giggles or are you running a serious competition? Because if you're running a serious competition with serious competitors with a serious title or prize on the line, do you really want the dude who just found out about it this morning when he woke up and checked the forums and wandered in off the street saying, I play this game, I'll have a go. Now you've got another two matches at least in the bracket. You've got to run for a guy who doesn't even really care whether he's there or not. Is that worth it for everybody else? Yeah,
2: at a certain point, like the integrity, integrity of the tournament is more important than the hang ons basically.
1: Yeah, like I, there was a guy um, by the name of Freddie Teo. Summer was his nickname. Melbourne guy, who um, at one point I used to badger him sometimes when I was down in Melbourne. Why don't you enter the bracket? Why don't you enter the bracket? He's like, I know you see it as getting the numbers up and it's fun, and everything, but says if I'm not serious about this game, it's disrespectful for me to enter this bracket and play against these people who have trained and worked hard when I don't really, I'm not that interested in it i'm not serious enough about it i used to think that that was a negative but over the years as i started to realize that i was the annoying hanger on in the bracket sometimes <laughs> you started to go yeah i don't really care that much whether i'm playing or not and you know anybody could fill the the scrub slot i mean a buy or me it doesn't almost matter at this point it, it is kind of like don't get me wrong i encourage people to have a go i want people to try but um you know you do have to sit down and want to win even if you think you're going to go two and out you need to sit down and be serious
2: I think York Street Battle has a lot to do with you've, you guys have created to get pre-reg to work you have to get a culture of pre-reg and BYOC going and yes. you guys have definitely got that going with, uh, with with York Street Battle because I noticed at X, quite a few Melbourne players didn't even realize that it was BYOC even though it's mm. there on the site and I brought my stick because it says BYOC but <laughs> because they're not used to it in Melbourne yes. we don't really do BYOC and you guys have trained your players to be used to that and I think that that is a <laughs> really good effect of yeah
1: I mean hats off to Spencer and Shane they've been the one who have done all the hard work on the ground to make that happen but yeah I mean in terms of the decision to do it I mean I I didn't make that call per se. I think it was Spencer who's kind of just fronted up and said, look, if I can provide the monitors and consoles and they can provide the sticks, we can meet halfway here. Because the problem under the old model of – or the classical model of, look, if enough people bring enough stuff, we can make enough setups to make this work. Um, You just never know what's going to come in the door. Whereas the attitude that sort of Evo has taken that seems to work pretty well for them is – we can provide you the monitors and the consoles and the games. All we ask is that when you call up to play, you actually have a device upon which you can play. So, and it just means it makes it clear who's bringing what to the party, if you know what I mean. There's no people to bring in two bowls of chips and no dip. Yeah. Kind of thing. You, so, so you actually get all the food you need for the banquet, so to speak. And that way, um, and the, the good thing about 6.2 is it's one of those things that you can kind of, you don't need one per player really. Like you say you want that, but you can get by with quite a few less because you're never going to have one console per player so not, not like a Halo tournament or something so you can you can manage a bit less you can make up the shortfall you don't need everybody to be on board you just need enough people and enough people who are generous and kind enough to be willing to share their gear with other people and, um, and you can get it over the line but in terms of If you look at all the stuff you've got to provide for console tournaments, the logical way to split the responsibility between the organizers and the players is controllers on the player's side because that's the part they need to use and that they might be personally touchy about. And the other side, which they're insensitive to, you can mass collect on the organizer's side.
0: The other thing with the BYOC is why would you trust somebody else's stick? Because obviously you're in a tournament, you want to use something which feels natural and which you've been practicing on. Or, you know, personally, if I'm ever going to be playing in a tournament, I want to be playing on something that I've either played on before or I feel comfortable with Mm. or something that it's mine Mm. because, you know, it's. To use a stupid analogy, is I'm not going to borrow your pair of shoes to go play basketball.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just a culture. Like we we were discussing BYOC in our Couch Warriors and Illuminati shadow meetings, and like it's <laughs> people people are some people are resistant to it because they're just used to it. Like we have to create the culture of BYOC in Melbourne and kind of in Australia when. Worldwide I mean Countrywide We're getting to the point Where it doesn't make sense To do it at majors anymore To do it otherwise Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean two things on that One one side of it It's definitely the um, I, I understand carrying a T Under your arm For a while Especially if you're on public transport whatever, Is a pain in the neck Like don't get me wrong I understand it's not fun Um <laughs> Uh, imagine what it's like at Evo when you got to like, lug that sucker around for half the day. I mean, I uh, did. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I you know exactly what I'm talking about. So it's I understand the resistance because it's a pain. And like, okay, if you can find friends to share the burden with, let's face it, it's a social community. You are supposed to try to make hookups here. So make friends, share the burden, make it a bit easier for yourself. You know, if three guys are sharing a stick over the course of a day, and only one has to babysit it from time to time. It's not so bad. Um, but on on the other side, definitely that arcade culture of you come in and you play with the tools that you find is very much ingrained in a lot of the older players, for sure. Like, I'll give you an example when I went up to the ACL finals uh, in Brisbane last year, some guy had a, his own hyperfight cabinet that he brought in to the event. And um, those controls were wired up terribly. Like, one side, the kicks and the punches were the wrong way around. The other side, certain directions on the stick weren't working and certain buttons weren't working. And you know what? People played the hell out of that. Why? It was a challenge. People said, I want to play my. iPhone. Some- I don't care that it's wrong. I'll just work out how to cope with. And so when it's casuals anyway, there's this attitude of – I mean, I hear the US OG say it all the time. If they get and walked in and they found a Street Fighter cabinet and like heavy punch wasn't working, say, okay, who can I pick that I can win with without heavy punch? It was a puzzle to be solved. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that, that, was, that was the attitude they took. Now, it's not the attitude I ever take. I actually get really annoyed when I come up to a cabinet and things don't work. But um, there's that generation of people who say, well – if you give me a stick and it's, you know, it's a lemon, I'll just make lemonade out of it. It's okay. I'll find a way to do it. I
0: mean, to, to, to be honest though, in, in, in the early arcade days, because I was an arcade rat um, and I've traveled and I've played in arcades literally all over the world, including Spain, France and so forth. Um, and, you know, I've played in some really dingy places. And the thing is, you just sort of walk in, you put your money in and yeah, it, it, it's basically like rolling the dice. Honestly, and you just do what you can. But we've gotten now to a point where, you know, arcades are no longer around, you know, and if you're going to be playing in a serious tournament, yes. personally, you know, you, you want to bring your own stuff. Mm. Um, and the other problem is, the other problem is with the arcades in those days was the owners, it would cost them money to <laughs> replace things every time. Mm. Yep. And if, and basically you have to look at the bottom line. If people are still playing on half broken things and the money is coming in, well, why fix something that's not broken, even though the sticks are broken. Yeah, Bad pun, but still.
1: (laughs) Well, I think the thing is too as well, when you walked into that arcade to play on that broken controller, it was casual time, right? You were just mucking around anyway. Exactly. Some practice was some practice, no matter how silly it might have been. To my mind, walking in and playing on a broken cabinet is the same as going online and getting nothing but lag matches, right? I mean, you just make the most of the situation. Walking into a tournament, if you walked into a tournament and there was bad lag, you'd probably walk out. Um, We walked into a tournament and the sticks weren't working. I remember this happened when we tried to run a effort tournament playtime once the sticks weren't working. Everybody just stepped back and waited two hours for the technician to come in because they refused to play on it. And I mean, that's a fine example of why arcade tournaments are and should be dead because the the environment's just not conducive to getting the right quality at the right time. And that's why we need to – for tournament play, there needs to be a mindset of – I know you always have the casual guys, but you need a mindset of if you're a competitor, you need to have certain gear with you of certain quality – and yeah, understand there's a certain amount of responsibility on you. I mean, it's, we emphasize that with the rules all the time. Like, if you didn't read a rule and you accidentally pause and your player decides to take the round, there's no point going playing and crying. I mean, it's written down there. You had the chance to read it beforehand. Um, but, yeah, there, a lot of people really have trouble crossing the line, going from casual mindset to this is just a game to I'm competing at this game now. And, um, and it's funny because often people on the casual side get really mad about losing and stuff. And they're not really in that competitive mindset either. They kind of live in this weird hybrid space where they think they're competitive, but they're not. And they can be a bit frustrating to deal with at times. But it's Because, because they'll, they'll compete, but they're not really competing. And they're the guys who will not turn up with a stick and then cry when you don't give them a stick and all this sort of stuff. Well, um,
2: to get off the topic of BRC for a while, um, I would like to go back to um, you talk about Justin Wong and bringing Daigo over. And it seems that you guys have definitely had a history of bringing over international players before, but are you, are you for it in this day and age? Do you think, what, what are your thoughts on organisers firing out big name players to their events?
1: Well, I mean, in terms of history, I mean, you know, I mentioned why Justin Wong, sorry, Daigo came out. I never quite finished probably saying why Justin Wong came out. Ultimately, we had spare money from the SBO fund that didn't get used because we didn't send a team. So between that and player donations and Joey calling up Justin directly instead of talking to Triforce and saying, hey, are you free? Would you like to come? He's like, yeah, man, I'll come. Just play for the ticket. And so we did that. And lo and behold, next thing you know, Justin Wong's in Sydney. So it was just doing it, learning the right way to go about it, basically. And we only we only entertained the idea because we knew OHN6 was a dead event. It was dead in the water. There was no interest. No one No one was coming from Melbourne. No one cared. Oh, sorry, I say no one. Toxie was always going to come around because he's just hardcore. But... Kevin wasn't coming until he heard about Justin Wong, and a whole bunch of other people weren't really coming until they heard about Justin Wong. So um, he was he was the only meat in the sandwich that year. There was nothing else. There was no hype around any of the games. And I mean, Justin won seven of the eight games or whatever. It was just a, it was free, pretty much. I mean, his match against Kevin in First Strike was the only really epic. Final that he was in, and Kevin gave him a real run for his money. But you know, Ibuki and Chun Li, it's third Strike, what can you do? But um, <laughs> and, and don't get me wrong, I don't know if you've watched those videos, but damn, he he, he thought about it and he put a damn hard good effort in. But um, you know, still Chun Li versus Ibuki. But, um, but yeah, so he was brought out really because the event had nothing else, and it was also making up for the failure of OHN5 in not getting him out. OHN was always intended as a national rivalry tournament. It was never really meant to be a vehicle for international competition. Even APAC wasn't even meant to be a vehicle for international competition. It was really meant to – well, actually, that's a, I, I tell a lie there. We were trying to get people from Southeast Asia to come. We were talking to Singapore and Hong Kong, um, and we were talking to New Zealand. We got New Zealand out, obviously, but for the others, we just couldn't strike a deal there, so to speak. Um, so we had had plans on that direction, but we never – put in the effort required to make it work. That's the most honest way to say it. Like, It's not that we would be against the idea of having a bunch of big names in Sydney from all over the world going at it. It's just the amount of money and time and investment needed. No one on the team then or now um, is prepared to do what's necessary or is invested enough in realising it to make it kind of happen. Yeah, you have to really
2: want it to happen and then be prepared to put in the hours. And this, is there a conscious decision, like with the presence of Shadow on now? It's like, oh, you know, they got the guests, let them have to, um, let them do the guests and we'll focus on the national side of things. You said, like, a-
1: I think that's a natural thing, response to the situation at hand, really. Um, I mean, after Evo APAC, there was kind of the sense of we weren't prepared for Daigo and what Daigo brought to because Daigo was post Justin Wong course. And with Justin Wong, the fan factor wasn't the same. Like, people didn't line up for Justin Wong's autograph. This was all pre Street Fighter 4 as well. So, A, it wasn't that generation, and B, it was just a Wong. More people thought it saw him as a villain than as a hero. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, yes. so, it was a completely different mindset. And um, we just weren't prepared for the amount of people that came to spectate just because Daigo was there, the amount of people that signed up to play just because Daigo was there, the amount of people that wanted to talk to him or get an autograph, the amount of Japanese people living in Sydney that turned up just because Daigo was We've never seen those people ever again. But, you know, they came up just because of him.
2: Oh, so, I, I went down to Sydney for Daigo
1: see yeah (laughs) but yeah so so there was a lot of a lot of that um yeah but like you're in the community and you you would have come for street fighter sort of regards but there were dudes we'd never seen before and have never seen since and I think you you probably had that at Shadaloo showdowns as well as dudes who have turned up you've never seen them before and you've never seen them again just because they wanted that I've seen this dude on like cross counter I've seen this dude I've watched this dude's matches so many times I want to I want to breathe his air I want to play against him I want to be in the same room as him, I want his name on my te, damn it, and so, so they go for that. I mean, there's, there's a draw card to that, and that's, that's a great thing. I don't know financially how to build yeah. a tournament around it personally. Is
2: it, is it sustainable it's, here in Australia? Mm. Mm, Who knows?
1: That's a very good question. If I were to do it the way I do things, no. Like I totally can't be done the way I approach things. The way Shane Spencer are approaching things right now as well, I don't think it would be. I don't know how the Shadaloo Showdown guys do business. I'm pretty sure like the Couch Warriors guys, if they were left to their own devices, the way they do things, it wouldn't make sense. But because shadowloo has got this international perspective and they've got their finger in pies beyond Australia um, and they're taking a business attitude towards it and they're networking on a business level.
2: That is the biggest difference. Like Couch Warriors and Osadu, we're, we're kind of like non-profit organizations with a hobby community side on things and Shadow is a business straight straight out
1: precisely yeah so i mean like props to those guys there like people like dane and that in their time and even eric to some degree had a, a more business mindset and sort of tried to push in that direction but nobody has had the manpower or the hours um or the resources that Shadow have brought to the table and um and, you know, it takes the right combination of people that you're comfortable to work with and the right dedication across all those people. As I said, it's not hard for me to find friends to work with within the community, but finding friends to work with who are prepared to put in the amount of effort I am or more, because to be honest, it takes more than what I put in to do what Shalou does, way more. So um, that's that's just takes, you know, the right place, right time, the right people, because unless you know you've got the money to hire these dudes, you're relying on them just turning up and being keen. It's not easy.
2: It's not easy at all. It's a humongous task, and mm-hmm. Shalou's not replicable. Because they have Ali Who does it basically full time And you have Brothers who have the necessary skills And And they live in the same house And
1: that's right. I mean, if, if you look at SherryUken.com, you have to look back and ask yourself, if the Cannon brothers weren't brothers and twins, would SherryUken look like it does today? Who knows? Would EVO look like what it does today? Who knows? So sometimes it just takes the right combo of people at the right place and the right time, and you just don't know when it's going to happen. So what do you think of Daigo being in Sydney while we were in Melbourne for <laughs> that, that was a surreal time because like, I got phone calls as I was getting off the plane for Shadaloo Showdown one. And um, Joey's like, yeah, I hear Daigo's in Sydney. I'm like, you have got to be kidding Yeah, me.
2: what a troll. <laughs> you
1: know, what is with this man? But anyway, um, I mean, we tried talking to him about SS. and We tried talking to him about coming to S3, which is like the weekend after. And then he's like, no, nah, I'm just here to chill. I'm like, that's cool. That's cool. But like, you, you don't, like, we've never talked to Daigo directly. There's a language barrier, obviously. Um, but it's always been going through, like, his agent, his representative, who um, I think she's with Capcom USA by memory. Um, so, who represents him when talking to, I guess, Western interests? Even now that he's sponsored by Mad Cats? No, it might be different now. The, well, actually, no, he was sponsored by Mad Cats at Evo APAC, wasn't he? Yeah, he was wearing
2: a Mad Cat shirt. Yes, yes, uh,
0: actually. I think that was yeah. probably one of the first tournaments that it, he went to, is sponsored by Mad Cats, yeah. actually.
1: I, I, rem- I remember people saying, oh, you know, Mad Cats sponsor him to go to Evo APAC. And they used to rub me the wrong way a bit because like, Mad Cats had nothing to do with anything. It was just Seth getting in touch with us and then putting us in touch with this woman who was managing him who I think was within Capcom USA who was like acting as a liaison. Like we got no officer of assistance from Madcats, no money, no nothing. I'm always a little bit cynical actually about sponsored players as a tournament organizer because it's kind of the what's in it for me attitude. It's sort of like, okay, so yeah, you're paying the player to do the thing and the stuff but then I got to pay to get him here.
2: Yeah. I think, I think, there was this misconception about sponsored players at the start of this whole phenomenon, but now people are starting to realize the, the reality of it that, I guess, a lot of sponsors don't really do anything for...
0: No, it's for... not It's not actually that. I think the majority of the sponsorships are, if they say the player is mm. a US-sponsored player, they're only sponsored for US tournaments. Oh, they're yeah. not sponsored for international tournaments. That is true. Oh, sorry the scope of the contract is we will sponsor you to go to US tournaments. Mm. So if they say want to go to SBO or they want to go to Australia or they want to go to, you know, Singapore or anywhere else, I believe that's, you you get there on your own dime. Mm. You're still representing us, but...
2: But what I mean is there was this big rush of people to go and get sponsored at the start of this trend and now you see people kind of like leaving the contracts and people like being unhappy with the situation. Yeah, because,
0: I mean, just like, most other places, people don't really think about lawyering up and reading contracts. <laughs> up. I'm serious. Yeah. It's the same as signing a contract on your phone. Do you know how many people don't read the, their 24-month mm. contract and then they decide to back out and they go, well, wait a minute, you owe us $600. Yeah. Pretty it's much. It's the same deal. People don't sit down and, you know, read contracts. Yeah. I mean, it's a nice idea, but the other thing is actually what I really wanted to say is I think Gutex and Mike Ross really... Their sponsorship is actually probably one of the most interesting things is because Gutex is a very oriented from a business perspective, has that sort of a mind. Mm-hmm. And when they announced they got sponsored, I actually really wanted to see that contract. Ah,
2: <laughs> it would be interesting to read, but that's never going to happen.
0: It's not going to happen, <laughs> but I would really like to see that because mm-hmm. I think that will sort of give the perspective of how sponsorship should work, mm-hmm. where I believe there is a give and take in that relationship rather mm-hmm. than... Not so much in, from what I've noticed from all the other sponsorships, yeah. especially some of the Mad cats ones, which I find a little bit more very interesting. Yep. Yeah. Like Team Mar- But anyway, let's not get yep. si- sidetracked too much.
2: Yep. So next topic, are you guys going to do a follow-up to S3? S3? Oh,
1: geez. Um, I mean, S3 was kind of the unofficial successor to Heatwave, which was the unofficial successor to nothing. I think it was just – um, it was born out of – not much happening at the time, by memory. It was it was kind of it was a it was a gap filler. At one point, Justin and I talked about our having like biannual instead of annual in Sydney, like major wise, where there would always be the national level focus one, and then another one that was a lower key that people could come to. Um, it never really took off, probably because you go through that phase of thinking, yeah, we can do more of this, and then after you do a major, you're like, no, we can't do more of this. <laughs> so, so you kind of you have to keep um uh, you have to be a little bit realistic about these sorts of thing sometimes I mean yeah,
2: you have to be slightly insane I think I think guys like Ali and Chris GC are slightly insane because they, they do one event and it's like oh man that was so tough oh let's do it next week
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah like, I, like I think when I when I walked into the um, Capcom showcase in Sydney um, and saw Ali and Chris and that doing their thing there like the first reaction was oh it's a shame that Sydney guys weren't invited to do this and then a few minutes later I looked at the condition and I went Glad I'm not doing this because you just you just think you know you really have to want to do it like you have to be in in the space and um like props to those guys for it takes a lot to daunt those. Guys. They are willing to, you know, you say that's it, Antarctica tournament. Let's go tomorrow. Let's just do it. They'll do it out in the middle of the snow. They don't I, care.
2: I, I'm pretty sure he would, mm. unless he ran out of gas on the way. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but like, yeah. So whereas I'd probably, I'm, I'm, I'm well and truly into this is a hobby, and I'm an old man, and I whinge about things. So I'd be there going, oh man, why do I not have more sticks? Why can't I get these people out of my way? I don't have a megaphone. This is unacceptable. I'm going to have a deeper fit. But like, Ali's no, I will soldier, and that's. And that's just the way it is. So, like, you know, um, so I think one of the problems with wanting to do more majors is that there has to be the, the sort of reason and motivation. Like, I think, like, looking nationally, I think what the scene needs now is more, more stuff in the other regions that have critical mass. Like, I feel like, I don't think Perth and Adelaide are there yet, but they're on the path. And I think that, um, I don't know if Canberra will ever get there just due to the population, but you never know. Um, but Brisbane, I feel like, is kind of living in a sort of limbo space at the moment. Like, good stuff happens in Brisbane, but just hasn't quite cemented itself to sort of, like, like the, the fusion of events to create a sustainable major quite hasn't happened. Like, it feels like all the parts are there, but, like, that, that one last catalyst doesn't seem to be coming on. I mean, maybe it'll happen this year, maybe next year, I don't know. But um, I'd be more interested in helping to create, something that fills a gap like that. Whereas I feel like another major in Sydney wouldn't really be plugging a gap at the moment. I think that between YSP and OHN they're well and truly sorted out.
0: Yes. To be honest with you, I think the only... I mean, from talking to Tom from Queensland, um, I think they're just missing a Gamogo or a Shane or an Ali to just basically take all those little bits and go, look, this mm. is all we're doing. Mm.
2: Come out. Somebody with the right mixture of yeah, free time and passion.
0: just the leader to yeah. basically unite the Queenslanders... Well, there was go, one guy they mentioned that was that guy for a while. Was it Valkyrie sorry? I'm not sure. I, I can't remember. I can't but remember yeah, him. I think that's the only thing that sort of Queensland's missing is just basically one motivational guy to go, look, this is where stuff's gonna happen. Be here mm. and let's get this going.
1: Yeah, because yeah, because I mean between Slapper on the Ozhado slash Land Smash side and then JB on the Land Smash side, I mean they've got some of the best streaming gear in the country, but maybe Bugsimus. They've got plenty of gaming gear and hookups and they've got venue access and they've got players there Um, as you say they just seem to lack one dude who's like I'm going to make sure this happens sort of thing
2: Mm. Mm. and speaking about streaming why doesn't why don't we get more streams and match videos and stuff out Sydney like why why aren't there York Street battle streams I've always wondered about Mm. this
1: Okay, the reality of of Sydney is that everybody's lazy by default, but I imagine that's the same in every scene, right? So you're waiting for that one magical man to emerge from amongst the masses and say, I am your superhero, I will save the world, I will do this job. And um, no man has put up his hand and um, come in to be the hero of the stream for Sydney. It just hasn't materialised. I mean, Benson has kind of done some stuff on and off, as has the Muso, but the Muso doesn't seem to be available when... YSPs happen consistently enough to be the go-to guy, and Benson sort of is in a similar boat. So the end result is that no one individual has said, I feel like being the streamer. Everyone's still kind of happy being the player or the brat guy or whatever. And, um, of course, it's... I mean, as you guys would know probably from talking to Bugs and us I mean, it's not a cheap endeavour. Once you decide to stream, man, you've really got to have some um, capital behind you and be committed, and, and ours. I mean, it's not a s- small undertaking. So... Again, it's just waiting for that guy to turn up. I mean, at the moment, you know, we're cheating at OHN and using um, the talents of JB and Slapper to get it done with land smash resources. But, I mean, if you don't have, you outsource. That's just how the world works. Um, But you can't do that at a local level, so... Well, what about just more media content
0: in general? I mean, how about something, you know, just getting, like, matches from York Street Battle recorded and then put up on Osmo. YouTube. Because, you know, this is the thing. It's like, for example, I didn't even know that York Street Battle was on today. You know, I mean, and by the way, like, uh, to be honest, 100% honest, I don't really follow the Australian fighting game scene that much. Uh, my main interests, I mean, I love the Australian fighting game community, don't get me wrong. But I don't follow it as much as I followed the US because there's just so much more media content coming out of the US. And, um, you know, I really, I really want to know what's happening in Sydney. Uh, I mean, besides going to, you know, also to reading the forums... Um, there's no other way for me to really get any information of what's happening. And not just in Sydney, by the way, in any of the other local scenes, um, you know. And, yeah, it's, it's just a bit disappointing because I'm actually really interested to know what's happening in Adelaide. I'm more interested to see what's happening, especially in WA. You know, I, I only see the race like once or twice a year. You know, Mr. Chowder, Guillotine Fist, mm. you know. I know they're out there doing stuff, but, you know, why don't tell me something? <laughs> yeah, exactly
1: that's right, because most of my knowledge of what's going on around the country comes from occasionally glancing at the forum, which I don't read anywhere near as much as I did five years ago. So, in fact, I barely look at it these days. So, um, you know, aside from just scanning my eyes down the tournament announcements thread, you've got no idea what's going on. And, um, I mean, OH as a centre of information has fallen quite short of what it could have been and what it should be. The the front-page blog has been a complete and utter debacle. Um, part of the problem is, again there's no guy who's kind of put his hand up and said, I will be the blogger of OzHero. So the end result is that, you know, I do my thing every week um, where I just have my little rant about tournament organization. And then you've got occasionally if Shane's got five minutes between his ridiculous work schedule to, to say something he might. Um, Justin was head blogger, but he's faded into the background. There were a few other guys that have been on there, but they just don't commit. So like myself. My, okay, you're selling yourself short there, Martin, because – to be honest, the one area that I don't usually have to worry about whether news is being covered is Melbourne because I know if there's something serious in Melbourne, you'll usually jump on and you'll blog it. Like Even with OHN, I had to blog everything except Melbourne because you would always jump on there and blog Melbourne. So thank you very much for doing that. Well, I, um, could,
2: I could be doing a better job, but that's another discussion for yeah. another day. And actually, I, I have a little bit of an issue these days with um, everyone is doing streams. I can't embed stream videos on the little window there.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, because that, that that little um text box or whatever doesn't really let you do much. Yeah, uh, so it's not
2: YouTube. I can't put it there, and it's kind of like annoying. Cause uh, oh, but yeah. okay, that's another another discussion.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, but I mean, the front page has been due for an overhaul for a long time now. Um, our our web lord Shane has Gamurgo, has just been busy with other tasks and hasn't been able to get it done. There's prototypes and stuff. Things are moving along, and like I seriously, six to 12 months ago, I would have loved to have seen something go up. Um, I don't, I can't tell you when it may or may not happen. It's a question that he needs to be asked, I guess. But um, that's definitely something I'd like to see happen because my my vision of the front page blog was really it should have been like a key highlights aggregator the way that Event Hubs is for the rest of the world, just saying, this event is on in this place this weekend, keep it in mind, or so and so. Here's a quick rundown of the winners of the events from last weekend and Capcom's doing a thing in Sydney this weekend or this day. Remember it? Those kind of sound bites, or even "Hey guys, Street Fighter Cross Tekken is on the shelf now at JB" or it's dropped today. There's heaps of Australian-specific news you could blog. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's just nobody seems to be willing to be the blog man or woman. Again, there's there's a lot of potential, like in a lot of parts of the scene, um, and Ozheado is a site for a lot of that, but it just needs. You know the men on the ground. It needs people who want to commit to it and make it happen.
0: So what did, what were the motivations for creating bracket? Yeah.
1: Well, it was a bit of a, it was a two-phase thing. I mean, there's, I mean, everybody know that I gave rather vocal feedback after the second Shadaloo showdown. Um, I won't go into detail on that. But oh, no, We got
0: questions for that.
1: Oh, okay. Very good. Um, <laughs> but we, um, it was kind of, it was two-pronged. One, okay, maybe three-pronged. On the one hand, I built this um, spreadsheet for doing all of my seeding at OHN. And I thought it was a good tool, but I knew that it was horrifically user unfriendly because I'm not a programmer. I'm like a mathematician. So I can only program enough to get my algorithms to work and then the rest is just good luck. So it's a tool that does what I need to do, but you can't just hand to somebody and say, use it. It's it's like challenge. It's not. Um, So I thought, well, if I did a series of... um, Articles or whatever, where I explained the functionality, what it doesn't, gave an example of how to use it, like a a living training manual. Then at least people wouldn't have the excuse that they, even if I said, "Look, there's a better tool out there," and say it's hard to use. Well, I've tried to educate you, even if you're not interested, kind of thing. So that was one side of it. The other side of it was a certain degree of frustration of trying to give feedback to tournament organizers and it not being taken on board, or it being taken too much to heart rather than seen as constructive criticism. And wanting to have a and wanting to have a way of sharing that with a wider audience, because it seemed like the target audience wasn't prepared to listen. And I thought maybe if I started to talk to everybody instead of just the organisers, maybe the attendees would start to become more vocal about things that they either liked or didn't like. Because it's a two-way street as well. Like if they love something, by all means, identify, understand why it works, and then praise it rather than just blindly praising it. Um, so those were sort of the two sides of it and um, I say originally I thought that I'd only write about my spreadsheet and my theories on how I like to see the bracket and then that would kind of be the end of the road and I'd have nothing else to say. Um, But then when I started thinking about it, there's kind of a ridiculous amount of little micro things I can talk about when it comes to running a tournament. So then I just kind of kept kicking it along and kicking it along and um, I don't think it's going to go on forever. I can see an end in sight. Um, because otherwise I'm sure I'll start repeating myself. But, I mean, it's been a bit of a catharsis for me just to get things off my chest. Um, I hope it doesn't come across completely negative. It's meant to be encouraging and empowering, not talking down to people. I suppose I have a habit of that being my tone sometimes. But um, the lack of feedback makes it hard for me to tell if anyone's reading or if anyone cares. But um,
2: I read it. I I enjoy finding out more about that stuff. And, um, yeah, I mean, I think the tone that you have is fine because I'm
0: dumb, I need to be educated. (laughs) Well, it's not even that. I mean, you also have almost over 10 years experience in running tournaments. pretty much,
1: yeah. Yeah, I I guess that was the other thing too is just like it's really, like it's awesome that people want to do it their way and like I totally respect that and I know we need people who want to do that because you'll never get innovation without people saying, "Now I've got an idea and I'm going to make it happen. But it it makes me, me bleed inside when I watch people make the same mistake I made five years ago. And it's like, you could have dodged that bullet. There was no reason to take the hit. And you've taken the hit. Now everybody's got to wait another five years for you to learn the lesson. It's like, no, we're, we're, we're further than that. And we're, you know, running a tournament shouldn't really be – I mean, competitive from the sense that we all want to one-up each other and offer a greater experience. But it doesn't have to be competitive from the sense of, you know, we've all got to make the same mistake five times in a row before somebody learns anything. Like, I'd, I'd rather stand on the shoulder of giants than um, – whether that be Shadaloo or Couch Warriors or whoever, rather than us going, oh, man, I just paid no attention to what happened over there, and now I'm starting from the ground floor again. It's like, but, dude, there's all this stuff you could have based your ideas on. There's no need to start from the The wheel is invented. Don't reinvent the wheel.
0: Mm. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's basically just trying to mitigate certain pitfalls which you can actually do by, yeah. And that actually makes sense. I mean, there was a lot of... It just reminds me, actually, of any OHN... Uh, not OHN an operational health and safety environment in any mm-hmm. work. That's basically what they do. Yep. They tell you to sit up straight, you know, to have your monitor at 90 degrees and you're basically doing the same thing, except for it's just running a tournament. Yeah, pretty much. Oh. So why did you create the 2011 Shadowloo Showdown feedback thread?
1: It was it was an interesting thing because while I was on the floor at Shadowloo Showdown, People would come up to me from Sydney mainly but also from Queensland and they would just say to me, oh, you know, I'm not happy with the way this has been done with this bracket. I'm not happy with the way this thing's been done or whatever. And I said, well, um, th- primarily it was often seeding. And, like, you get that at any time. Like, people whinge about seating; It's inevitable. So um, I said to people, well, you know, okay, you're not happy about seating. I mean, you're in the heat of the moment because you're about to play. If someone can kind of give me a look at the brackets so that I can take it away, and think about it and actually quantify how the brackets have been done let's see if you really have a case or if you're just emotional so and i knew i was never going to be able to get that data directly from the organizers but it was published on the wall public for anybody to write down if they had the time so some guys snapped some shots for me and sent them across to me and so i put together some stats and I was surprised at how good the regional spread was when I did it. Um, I felt a lot of people from interstate were really unfair to Loki because, considering the awful um, data, the way it came into him, he um, managed to apply. I don't know how he managed to do it, but he managed to get a pretty good spread. By being superhuman, that's oh, how yeah. Loki I mean,
2: did it.
1: Oh yes, he's more machine than man. But yes. yeah. He, um, he, he ended up creating something that worked pretty well. I mean, obviously it has its gripes, like, you know, Tom, I'm Australian champion, Marvel, why am I in the, in the middle of some random pool somewhere kind of thing? I mean, at the end of the day, that was never going kind to of be, be sorted in that environment. But um, it was more so that I wanted to analyse how it had been done and just identify, like, if it had been stacked, like all of Sydney and Pule or whatever, to say to people, yep, that really did go down, you should be upset about it, and people should be thinking about why that happened and why how they can mitigate it. Or if it wasn't the case, it's like you people are just emotional because you're in a tournament and you're and you're hyped up and you're psyched. Um, cut some people some slack and just chill. So, but I mean, I, th- I think after the event, while people had their feedback and gripes, a lot of people had a lot of positive things to say and really had a good time. So, um, it, but but why did you create that? Trend? Which uh, which when I, when I read, I I thought it was a lot of
2: fascinating discussion and I agreed with a lot of things that you said, but. Why, why did you not instead bring that to a private discussion with the shadow organizers instead of you mm-hmm. know putting it out there and you know perhaps giving kind of like an open target board for people to shoot things at them
0: I guess yeah, what one is sort of getting around, which I thought about is do you think it would have been perhaps better to yeah. to give them the data in a private forum rather than a public, public forum? forum?
1: Yeah, it would have definitely been better except that I'd already done that before for Shadowloo Showdown 1, um, where I talked directly to Ali and a few other people about how things went down at that event and I kept my feedback private. And I'd also um, filled out their survey that they put out, which was a good idea afterwards. And I was quite vocal in that because I wanted them to know everything that was on my mind. I figured, you know, the more they know, the better they can um, manage things. So, and like when I turned up at shadowloo Showdown 2 and saw that either solutions had been applied that were like, worse than the original or um things that i'd highlighted had been totally ignored i just felt and and in the lead up to shadow showdown too i would tried to sort of talk to organizers and was pretty much not um in getting any engagement so i felt like i had no direct line of communication anymore i felt like and especially when you consider that that shadow was over the top of the hn9 as well so there's a lot of tension around the um the degree to which people kind of cooperating on an organizer level. So I sort of felt like the door was closed at that point in time, or I tried walking through it and there was no receptiveness being mm. displayed. Perhaps so, you were
2: talking to the wrong guy. You should have asked, Dr. to Loki directly, maybe.
1: Yeah, I think on the bracket side of things, I could have talked to Loki directly. But I mean, I've, I mean, it's, it's difficult too because like, again, Full props to Loki for all that he does, and he does a fantastic job. But I kind of put my hand up when I went to the first BAM and said, you know, can I help? Because, you know, I'm not a competitor. I'm more than happy just to pitch and lend a hand. They're like, no, we're cool. We, we want to run our own thing, and I respected that. And I provided some assistance where I could, like, with some gear and stuff. But otherwise, it was their, their thing. And that was fine. But even when it was sort of um, talking to Loki, I found that it was sort of, look, it's, it's my brackets, it's my thing, just give me my, my space. It's like, that's cool. You know, I respect that. That's fine. Um, but it kind of means that if it gets, like, Loki is way more receptive to direct feedback, certainly. But I guess I was thinking, I was seeing it as a Shadowloo event more than a Loki event. So I thought, I felt the umbrella was really Shadowloo. And really, Catchware is advertising. Like, it wasn't made clear... From the advertising, whatever Couch Warriors is running the brackets, Shadow is running promotion or anything. It was never really delineated like that. It was kind of it's a Shadow event. We might be outsourcing some lo- smaller aspects of it, but I, um,
2: I guess it is really unclear to the rest of the states what is Shadow and what is Couch Warriors But the reality is that we're just basically all in Melbourne, and if it's a Melbourne major, it's very likely that all the Melbourne people will be helping out. So kind of it's called Shadow Showdown because it is Shadow run by Shadow, but like you have. Culturalist yeah. stuff and culture gear and even impact people running the brackets yeah. and so well, yeah, on and so forth.
1: In terms of running things, that's certainly how it works. Like it's often an all in effort with people pitching in. But what you'll find with any tournament is at some point you need a king. You need someone to sit at the in the CEO's chair and make the final call. Someone, someone needs to have the final power of this is how we're going to do it and this is not otherwise you end up just with you know decision paralysis where 10 people have a different opinion so someone has to sit in that chair and usually that person comes from one organisation or another so what ends up happening is there's usually one group that says look, at the end of the day it's our name up in lights so or we're going to be the front man for this, we're going to take the final hit, so I always feel if I walk to a band Loki's the man, like Couch Warriors guy will be making the final call on what happens, if I walk into a Shadowloo showdown I feel like um, Ali will, Ali, or one of his brothers will be the final decision point um, for for making a, a call. And the same if I go to a, a land smash, I imagine I'd have to talk to JB. No one else in the room is going to be the final, this is how it's going to be kind of guy. Now that's, n- not to say that's good or a bad thing, it's just the reality of how these things end up and working.
2: I, and I guess from a practical point of view, like, we did not expect to get 500 people in the door for Shadow Showdown 2 and, no. I mean, like, Talking to Ali on that weekend was basically, you know, so hard with so much shit going on that um, weekend. Oh,
1: well, I mean, you you guys, I mean, you guys know, just trying to talk to me for five seconds at OHN. Yeah, it's already not, really difficult. And that, that event was less than half the size. So like, I'm, once you get in that zone and you've got a job to do, that's it. You know, you can't really deal with any external stuff. That's why the the pre-planning phase is so, so
2: important. Yes,
1: because you're going to really much lay all the foundations. And once that's laid down, like... Things that broke at OHN, like the staffing roster and the way that happened, there was no capacity to fix it on the fly because everyone's just too locked into what they're trying to do. And I imagine Shadow Showdown was the same but amplified by a factor of 10. So, like, you know, if Loki was sitting there going, man, I wish I had five more guys to run this bracket. Well, there just aren't five more guys to run this bracket now. And the way they're going to do it has been laid out in stone. So they're just going to have to soldier and hope that they come out the other side. Um, It's hard, but that's, unfortunately, because we just don't have the amount of trustworthy people you can just call up at the drop of a hat. Often, if, if the scope of something blows up on you, you've just sort of kind of got to put your head down and hope mm-hmm. for the best. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, especially on a major on the level of OHN or Shalu Shoron. just can't call a random Joe out to, hey, hold this bracket for me. And,
3: yeah.
1: Yeah, so. I, I mean, what happened with the finals at OHN 10 um, is a beautiful example of, you know, how you set everything up and it's kind of got to run to that. And if it doesn't, it's just kind of, any fix is a catastrophic fix. And it's kind of, you don't want to go there, but you know, you have to finish it somehow. Mm.
2: But yeah, I mean, you were very transparent in your own criticisms and judgments of what went wrong at OHN. And kind of after um, having all that discussion about shallow showdown 2K11, uh, do you feel that, uh, how do you feel OHN work from an organization's perspective? Do you think things could have been done better? What were you actually happy about? And so on and so forth.
1: Yeah, I guess, I mean, I probably covered it already in painful detail on the forums. But um, like I, I think I think in terms of overall it worked... Well, my, um, like the fact that we managed to get all the games finals on the same day somehow and, and kind of bring that all together, give BYO games or DIY games, sorry, there a little bit of stage time, get our first ever OHN stream, all the rest of it. We ticked a lot of boxes that we really wanted to tick. And I'm very happy with that, the brackets, the way they ran everything. Um, biggest failures... Nearly having a dude from Brisbane having to fly home on Friday because he was underage for being in the venue was a huge catastrophe. Mm. Oh, really? Um, Yeah. um, Baxter from Queensland was under 18 and we didn't realize that we weren't allowed to have under-18s in the venue because of the fact that there was a bar kind of there Um, because we actually didn't realize that stipulation from the prior year but the staff had turned over at the venue and they were much more rigid on enforcing it. And in in the end, we negotiated no alcohol in the room, and he could stay, but if there's any alcohol, him and the guy who brought the alcohol in have to leave immediately kind of thing. So we, we managed to negotiate terms. But at one point, we were going to be paying to fly him home. That's how, on, on, how bad it was getting. So that was a huge screw-up on our part. Um, the other side of it was really the, um, the rostering and the scheduling in terms of how much we were doing. Because we hadn't done a multi-game tournament, Sensor like, OHN 9 was kind of a pick-up-and-run-with-it kind of thing. It wasn't really planned in detail, and it wasn't very big, so it didn't have to be. Um, EVO APAC was a one-game event, really. So, like, it's really easy to run a one-game tournament. You just have everything dedicated to that. So this was the first time going back to the kind of OHN 8 space where you had, like, half a dozen serious tournaments. We really only had three majors, but because of the EVO thing and trying to prop up Soul Calibur and KOF, even though they were DIYs, it kind of turned into a sort of five-game tournament. Um... And we just blew the schedule to pieces on the um, on the finals day in particular. But it wasn't really that great. Pools were running overtime as well on the Saturday. So really, we underestimated. That we were too. I'm usually very um, pessimistic about runtimes. I usually allow like way more time than necessary. But during OHN nine, I was criticised a lot for being too pessimistic about it. So this time, I took an aggressive stance, and it kind of bit us in the backside. So, it kind of turned around on itself. And it was embarrassing, too, because I'd just written that article about don't screw up your schedule, and then I screwed up the whole schedule. So, it was kind of, shoot yourself in the head, Ziggy. But, um, yeah, so, like, sometimes you just got to stuff it up to learn. Um, That's just how it goes. But, like, it was great to deliver an Evo-style finals, where all the finals were on the one day, but We learned a valuable lesson that you got to block way more time um, if you want to do it properly. Like, one hour was just way too aggressive per per game. Um, Shadow
2: Showdown is going to be a nightmare. We have so many games, the finals on Sunday. Dude, now you see,
1: it shouldn't be it's a nightmare. It should be right now we're, we're solving the nightmare. This is the planning phase. All the nightmare, it should only be a nightmare on the day. Like, up until the day, it should be we can do this. On the day, yeah, you can have it fall apart. But I hope everyone's sitting there in Melbourne going, we got this. We know what we're doing. We've, we've spent weeks, months planning how to make all this stuff actually fit together. Well,
2: this year we're, we're doing, we have um, basically, we, we're trying to allocate different, uh, every game has its own uh, bracket staff. So that way, uh, we we, we want to have an access of staff. Basically, we want to have a staff rotation. And for example, I, I'm going to be running Marvel uh, this year and we're going to probably be doing four pools at a time. So we want to have at least, you know, six to eight, staff members on hand to to run Marvel. So that's how, that's the approach we're going to have this year. And hopefully that'll be enough to take us over
3: the line. Yeah.
2: And I mean, so yeah, on that topic, um, you mentioned in Bracketed about volunteers. Um, and you also mentioned on OHN that that was one of the failings uh, training of volunteers. I mean, do you think, how do you think this can be better implemented?
1: Yeah. I mean, the, the two mistakes we made there, one was that we we thought it would be cool. I thought it would be cool to have like a rotation because one of the problems I've had in the past with staff is that like nobody kind of wants to be stuck watching a, a setup for eight hours or whatever. So I thought, oh, if we mix it up and they can do a bit of this and a bit of that, it'll kind of keep it fresh and they'll feel like they're having more fun doing it. The downside to that was no one really learned their task kind of on the fly at all because they just kept chopping and changing. And and also roster wise, once we started running late, the roster just didn't make any sense anymore. So um I think specialization is actually better, even though it seems a bit boring and oh, I don't want to be the gopher for the stream for eight hours kind of thing. It's like, well, if two guys are on it and you can each take breaks and things, then I think, but that way you become a, uh, you get in the zone with what you've been asked to do. And as it goes on, you get better and better at doing. Like, because I put myself in the zone of just running those brackets, I, like it was a bit of a stutter start at the first pool of Street Fighter 4, but as we went on, it was becoming really, really smooth and like I was getting it down sort of thing. So I think, I think you, so, yeah, I think specialization is actually important and finding people who are willing to specialize. I mean, most people, when they volunteer, are pretty easygoing. It's When you when you conscript people, it's a problem. When you say, I need you to help me, please, help me, please, and they say, oh, begrudgingly, all right, I will help you. Um, I need you to do this for eight hours. Um, yeah, sure, and then they disappear <laughs> after two because they didn't want to be there in the first. Yeah, but if much. the people who put their hand up, like all the Perth guys and the Sydney guys who volunteered, kudos to all of those guys, did a great job under the circumstances, and they're just like, you yeah, know, give me whatever, I'm just here to help. You know, they're the guys you should respect that they're willing to do that and actually give them a task to specialize accordingly. Um, the other side of it, training wise, was that because we were just a bit. Friday setup would have been the perfect time to do it, but we were a bit haphazard. Poor Spencer was stuck in work um, later than we would have liked, and he was kind of. He was our um, manager and master of equipment. So without him, we're a bit haphazard. with setup set up on Friday. So it kind of had to be done twice, which was a bit rubbish. We kind of set it up. He came in and said, you've done it wrong. And then we had to do it all again. Um, and that was fair enough because it was a mess. And uh, But because of that time waste, and time that could have been spent pulling all the volunteers aside and saying, this is the child. This is what's needed to be done. It just kind of got lost in the matrix. Um, so you definitely need to help people understand what they need to do. Um, having someone with experience and someone without experience pairing on a task is, and keeping them on that task all day is probably helpful. It means less training is needed. But yeah, like it was silly to think that we could train a, nearly a dozen people in half a dozen tasks when we were all too busy to so much as breathe um, before we kicked everything off. Uh, but yeah.
2: Well, that's why we uh, at for this year at least we've been using SNL as kind of Shaluna Live, sorry, for as kind of like a training grounds for the potential volunteers that we'll have at Shaluna Showdown. So. Uh, I mean, I I think we're still gonna be doing like training on the day, or at least we'll go through the rules or whatever. But I mean, um, I mean, we'll be. I think there's been concerted effort to train people in bracket running, uh, leading up to the event. And I mean, are you are you guys looking to do that in the future?
1: Yeah, well, I'm hoping that YSB becomes the training ground for OHN in that respect as well. Like, um, I said the, these exact words pretty much to Justin actually uh, during OHN. I said, like YSB ultimately OHN any any major is usually built on the foundation of its local so if the local works and it works well and it has good people behind it that will naturally flow on to the to the major in the same region assuming the same people are behind it so i'm like Like, one of the things that YSB sort of struggles with at the moment is it's a little bit haphazard because even though they happen every month, as you say, I mean, Eagle's already said, you know, I don't know that it's on, I don't know what's happening, I don't know if I'll even see anything from it. Um, It's never clear if there'll be a stream, it's never clear if there'll be a tournament, it's never clear what tournaments will be run, what games, what format. So there's kind of a little bit, yes, it brings Sydney together consistently, that's great. What happens after that is a little bit free-for-all. It's a little bit loose. And I think that the downside of that is if you try to build a major on top of that, it's kind of like the classic one of we don't have stream talent or we don't have a lot of committed bracket guys because they don't even know if when they turn up if they'll be running a bracket. So you kind of need to establish status quo locally so that you can build on that when you come to the major time. Um, And I think that it sounds like you're doing that in Melbourne, which is excellent to hear. Um, But Sydney needs to probably level up. In that respect, and make a commitment towards some kind of standard. I think the the Randbat plan will get it there, or we'll start to get it there, but we'll see how it goes over the next six months.
2: Yeah, and I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, it's good that definitely good that we're doing this this year, but I kind of feel that we can never have enough. I want to have even oh, yeah, more, and yeah. more and more and more staff who can run brackets. So I don't know, but that's just me. Yeah. I'm probably a little pessimistic or paranoid.
1: No no I am I'm, I'm probably like I don't know how pessimistic you are Martin, but I'm one of the most pessimistic people <laughs> So like you speak to me whenever you are down or pessimistic or negative or yes. suspect people aren't going to follow through because that's just my modus operandi Yes <laughs>
0: Yeah that that's actually the way I usually plan I don't rely on anybody well, I don't I usually if I plan anything in advance it's usually I have 46 backup plans just in case <laughs> something
1: Oh, yeah, man, like when I turned up at OHN, it's like I got the USB stick with the brackets, I got the printouts of the brackets, <laughs> and I got online brackets with my account. That and was something. really
2: good, actually. I really uh, enjoyed having the online brackets available. That was yeah,
1: mm-hmm. the, the feedback, like we only got like two posts on the show sure you can thread about live updates of OHN, and like they were both positive about like the stream and the brackets. So it's kind of like, well, that's, if, if you're not going to get much feedback, that's probably the feedback you want, right? So that, that was that was nice to hear. Um, that people appreciated it because you know it's it's been my long-term goal to make that process work better.
2: Yeah, I mean, we, I guess we've talked a lot about uh, uh, Shallow Showdown and BAM Ocean. I mean, do you feel that, uh, that communication is better since that time that, that of last year or can we improve it further between the different states and communities here in Australia?
1: Well, I think it's going to depend upon what everybody wants to see long-term. And to be honest, unfortunately, it's the organ. I say unfortunately, look, the organisers discern the agenda for the scene, let's face it. Um, While people in in the community might say what they want to ask for things, um, the only vote they have is really turning up, right? If they don't support something, it goes. If they do support something, it grows. It's that simple. Um, So the organisers determine what will or won't happen because they're giving of their time and their resources to make all this stuff a reality. So if they don't enjoy it and they're not committed to it, it's not going to happen. So... In terms of communication, like this year has been infinitely better than last year. Like, there's no, like, it's, it's gone from nothing to something. So, obviously, it's better. <laughs> but uh, not through lack like, of trying before, but there was just a sort of, I don't think everybody really understood that. We need each other that. Yeah, it yeah. was sort of, are we on the same team here? There's still a bit of uncertainty around that. I think it's, it's better now in the sense that people are saying, well, look, we don't want to slash each other's wrists. We want to achieve nationwide majors where everybody can go because that's good for the scene and there's an agreement in that space and people are working in towards achieving that which is good um is that all you could achieve of course not i mean that's just one way of realizing a coordinated national scene um because i've stepped back a lot i don't feel like i have any right to say what it should be it's not appropriate if i'm not doing things but um if we end up well at the moment we're kind of imitating probably the SRK or U.S. model of the mid of last decade or whatever, where sort of everybody operates in their own isolation, feeding into one kind of larger scale event, whether that, I mean, Shadlou Shodown is the one you'd have to name as the largest scale event just because it goes international and it's the biggest. If you're going to rep Australia, that's where you're going to go. So um, so it, it's it's kind of doing that, but it's doing it independently. Like people are using, talking to each other to kind of spread themselves out. But in terms of coming together, to create more, th- more than the sum of its parts, if you know what I mean. I don't see that really yet. I mean, it's people are talking about it from time to time, but there's no common agenda, whether that's because you need one leader or whether it's because I think no it's, one's formed.
2: I yet. think it's a bit of a logistical thing. Like, um, for example, let's say, if we want to interstate gear, let's say, you know, people bringing down their consoles and people running brackets. But if you're not there in our face-to-face meetings, like every week or every fortnight or whatever, it's hard to... It's hard to i don't know to get that, that that core staff together with interstate people if you get what i'm saying like.
1: yeah yeah like i like i mean one thing that would be nice and it's not hard to, it's not easy to do because getting it right is hard, but like if somebody decided to aggregate like once you identify what the Australian majors are sans showdown and you go well these are the these are the ranking points in our um annual thing and you kind of like it's hard to get the right numbers but I think Evo's hit the sweet spot with the way they do it with their um, Road to Evo you just say oh who cares about the size it's just this place gets these many points and these places get these many points and then third place and beyond gets just a piddling amount of points but at least we know you've tried so we'll make you stand out and then you you just agree that because that back with the apex system which some of you may be old enough to remember that thing was just a complete mess and um good intentions by the canons, but the execution was well it just can't really be done easily it's not the community just doesn't really allow for that to work so um But something where you say, look, I recognize your achievements going to these tournaments and it'll feed back into this other big tournament, which then might feed on to another big tournament somewhere else in the world. Um, The chain of events is healthy because it creates that sense of it's valuable to me to go around, not just as a player for experience or as a spectator for the height, but as a competitor building up my portfolio as as a serious tournament competitor. Because you don't really get that sense at the moment. Like you go around to these things and what you win, if you win, Um, ACL finals you might get a couple hundred bucks in a handshake and nobody really cares after that sort of does it it really have to be that disconnected I mean we're playing the same game I mean it is often under the same rules too so why is it that we can't sort of establish a circuit why has that been so hard to do I don't know the answer one one
2: reason is because results are inconsistent. Like for example, like when Spooning was doing the seating for Marvel, we had this problem where the dudes on the Queensland were like using different names when they entered tournaments and yeah, then screwed yeah, us yeah. up
1: so bad. Yeah, man. Brisbane people need like a Nazi up there to say you can only sign up under this name or you can get stuff. Because I mean I was hilarious when I was at the ACL final slap was like, uh, you know, it's, I said, Is that Tom? No, that's Melvin. Tom's over here. I was like, You've got to be kidding me. And It's like, why don't you just change it's like I tell them to sign up properly. They just do whatever they want. I don't care anymore. I'm sick of these people. I'm just going to put it in as it is. I was like, yeah, okay. I can kind of see where you're coming from.
0: (laughs) To be honest, though, I think there's also a bit of an ambiguity, uh, especially about the Melbourne scene, as to what exactly Shadaloo is, what exactly Couch Warriors are, as also what exactly the rest of the community is because uh, some of these things overlap, some don't. And then especially if you're coming if you're viewing say the Melbourne community from an outsider's perspective, say for Sydney, Queensland and so forth, you know, a lot of people think that Martin and I are actually part of Team Shadowloo, but we're not. We're we are basically just well, I'm just the community. We're basically guy. just
2: Martin and Igor. Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah. You know, um, now we help out Shadaloo as volunteers, but that's basically the end of it. Um, you know, where our involvement comes into it. Um, and same thing with Couch Warriors as well. Um, couch Warriors and shadowloo they have a working relationship, but mm-hmm. I believe there's quite clear pillars, at least if, if you're in the Melbourne community, you know the quite clear pillars, be- the differences between ShadowLoo mm-hmm. and Couch Warriors. Well,
2: well, my question is, is it... Re- Like, okay, I kind of know the answer, but is it important for people to know? Does it really matter as long as the tournament's on?
0: I believe so it is. Um, I think it's important because it's also one credit going where credit is due. Mm -hmm. But then also when it comes to, say, giving feedback to events, you're giving the feedback Uh, to the right people. Yep. Um, And I think that's also... So do you think there is an easier way of perhaps getting that sort of level of communication out to people so they know who they can talk to about certain things
2: like we have a staff overview of let's say couch warriors we have the treasurer the secretary the president and then like not only not just does couch warriors know that but the whole of Australia should know that kind of thing and then we have like a gigantic board that this is Osado and this is the this is the president, this is the well, web guy, blah 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 blah. This
0: could be good for the from a community perspective, but yeah. it could also be good for example for external
2: um, oh yeah funding like perspective. sponsors and exactly whatever.
0: so for example I know that if I want to go talk to, say I'm an external sponsor. Mm. Say I'm BenQ, Q, right? Yeah. And I want to go and talk to couch warriors and I want to sponsor one of their events. Yeah. Who do I talk to? The I PR talk to Berserk. Guy. Yeah Berserk. Yeah. Exactly. Who is I right. know that, but BenQ Q doesn't know that because they don't they don't know where they can get the information.
2: That is true. What do you think, Ziggy?
1: Yeah, it is a bit – Um, it, it it's quite disjointed and it's very slap happy and I think that's because a lot of people approach it from a, a hobby mindset and they don't think about the fact that they're going to have to interface with third parties at some point. So they just go, um, yeah, you know, I'm just running a club for my mates so I can – it doesn't really matter if they don't understand. You know, they know me, I know them, it's all good. But at some point as you go along, you either bring in people you're not familiar with or you talk to – other parties. And yeah, having, having no clear communication lines makes it very hard because a lot of these groups don't set up with a guy whose job is to kind of be the front man for dealing with these kinds of people. Like we certainly didn't have anything like that. So you, um, whereas for OHN, because we knew we didn't have anybody like that, we talked to Berserk and invited him to come in and be that guy because we knew he had the experience. We knew that he was sort of, um, he, he could be potentially be neutral, even though he had involvements with, Melbourne organization we didn't see that as a clash Um, and he sort of said yeah I'm happy to do that and in fact he was quite enthusiastic about it because he was already doing it with Queensland guys through Landsmash was already doing it with Couch Warriors and Shadaloo to a lesser extent Um, and kind of Ozado was the one that he'd never sort of been involved with before and he said now I actually have all my ducks in a row I can actually go I can actually approach these guys as a package deal and I can actually say to them I want to talk to you about the Australian fighting game community, not this organization or that organization or whatever. I can present you a, an annual circuit of events for which you can be involved in as a sponsor or whatever. And um, the power of that, you know, we don't really appreciate the power of that. I'm not a marketing guy, so I don't understand it. But he sees and understands just how potentially useful that is because we are small niche community groups. I mean, it's hard to talk to a sponsor when you're just talking about a couple of hundred dudes there. 50 dudes there, put it all together and talk about a national scene, and you've got something very different to sell. Mm.
2: That is really true. And yeah,
0: which sort of brings me back to this question Where do you see the Australian fighting in community in the next five years?
1: Ooh, it's a tricky one because, like, if you asked me this question back during the peak of like Super Street Fighter 4, the answer would be totally different to what it is now. Yeah, so, so give I think us both we, answers. Oh, okay. <laughs> Okay, let's get back to Super Street Fighter 4. Let, let's pretend that instead of releasing Street Fighter Cross Tekken, we got Street Fighter Five in the last part of this year, and it was like a total revolution again, like a genuine new game. Um, new engine, new graphics, new everything. I'd say that we'd be going from strength to strength, and we'd be seeing continual growth, um, focused with the particular game that everyone was keen on, and um, we could continue to expand. And the opportunities at the national level, and also with Capcom coming on board now, doing its own corporate backing... The sky would have been the limit in some ways, the, the way we're talking back during Evo 2010 or whatever. Um, now you look at it and you look at the limp fish that is Street Fighter Cross Tekken and you go, no, we're actually in a downswing now. We're actually going, we're slackening off. You're seeing the people who weren't super keen, who came into Street Fighter 4 going, I haven't played Street Fighter in years. They're gone now Um for the most part. The, the Street Fighter Cross Tech has not brought in any new people. It's simply divided the hardcore dead set players that are left. Um, I think we're heading towards fragmentation, and I think we're heading towards a period where some games are going to struggle to survive, and there's going to be a lot of noise across a lot of games, and a lot of people are going to fail to process it and are just going to cherry-pick or just switch off. And we're in danger of kind of backsliding Um I don't know where we'll backslide to because, like, I've seen the lows of the lows, if you know mm. what I mean. No, as you, go, but, yes. as you have, Of course, you've probably seen everything. To me. But um, how, how how bad could it potentially get? I think, look, I mean, if you've got a lot of smaller events in Melbourne and you're feeling that people are feeling overburned at the moment, you'd have to say that given the way things are going, some of those events are going to shut. You, I mean, that would be where the smart money would be, right? Because they, they, there's a critical number they need to achieve to meet cost. And if, got, if they fall under that, they've got to fall off the map inevitably.
2: Well, don't get me wrong. With the numbers, they, they've like, kind of like tapered a bit, but they still are meeting the cost. Like, for example, we get like, you know, 30, 40, 50 people at SNL. And it's just that we don't get that one chunk of 80, not 80 people anymore for any event.
1: And, and that's not necessarily a bad thing either because you can find that you can't really logistically handle that one whack of 80 potentially. You might find that spreading it over multiple small events is optimal for your scene, in which case, then that's fine. I mean, if they're all alive and healthy, then that's okay. Um, where I think it becomes a little bit awkward is if they're all doing exactly the same thing within days of each other, because you go, oh, yeah, I could go to the Street Fighter Cross Tech Tekken Singles on Monday or the next Monday or the next Monday or the next Monday, and it's the same thing with slightly different people or the same people. Where it becomes... And if and the problem is is if you've got people divided between games now and they're divided between events you've got to, theoretically, that double division is going to cause a shrinkage, right? I mean, it can't... It, that's not a growth platform anymore. It's hard to sell the scene as a growth platform when everybody's now in smaller chunks. With Street Fighter 4, it was great because you could say, we have a massive game with massive support. Join us. And um, people felt like they were part of something big and special. If Street Fighter Cross Tekken comes down, it's 100 dudes at EVO. I mean, sure, it'll be more like 500, but if it, even if it's only 500, I mean, that's a fraction of Street Fighter 4 at its peak. Um, how do you... How do you sell that? I mean, obviously, people are switching off already because the numbers aren't there. It's, I don't know. Depends on what comes over the horizon. I mean, Capcom right now seems to be taking a very step-back attitude towards fighting game development. We know Darkstalkers is coming. I don't see Darkstalkers as the kind of game that can create a Street Fighter 4-like search. Marvel...
0: Marvel was their their second best because the thing... I mean, again, this is sort of looking at a little bit from his from a historic perspective. But you had Street Fighter two that sort of started the whole, you know, fighting game genre. It completely revolutionized, and a lot of people have you know both nostalgic reasons, and it was something which started the whole thing. And then Marvel basically sort of took it to eleven, from a bad pun. Um, <laughs> again, it was another revolution where people sort of stepped into it, and Marvel was the first sort of type of game that they played. Um, and then Marvel sort of lasted for ten years, and then we've you know with Street Fighter Four we came back to, oh I remember playing Street Fighter Two, and or you have the new guys like Martin here who started playing competitively with Street Fighter Four, mm. and you know that's these are the sorts of areas that people sort of tend to cling to. So Marvel Three was sort of that that whole cycle for I I used to play Marvel Two now I'm going to play Marvel Three, or you had a whole people you had a whole bunch of people who didn't like Street Fighter Four but fell in love with marvel. So those were the, these are the two sort of big titles which sort of sparked the whole fighting game community in general. Marvel kept it alive for 10 years during the dark period. Street Fighter 2 sort of started the whole thing and lasted from, you know, 92 till about 2000. It's to me it seems like that now with Street Fighter Cross Tekken coming out, people are like, "Well, why do I want to play this when I like playing Street Fighter 4?" It's not Street Fighter 4.
1: Yeah, it's, it's to, I mean, the way I like to think of it, it's the crossover nobody asks for. Yeah, exactly. Like, and, um, I mean, it's, it's because, you know, you took a franchise that no one would think to cross with Street Fighter, right? I mean, Tekken and Street Fighter are diametrically opposed in styles. True, true Street Fighter is a game with projectiles in it. True Tekken is a game that doesn't have it at the most basic level. The two, you put them together, you've got to pick one or the other. Either you screw over Tekken by making projectiles work, or you screw over Street Fire and turn it into basically the second coming of Third Strike. It has come up pretty much like the second coming of Third Strike, but I don't know whether, like, the spit and polish just doesn't seem to be there in a lot of ways. And, um, like, Tekken players hate the game. Like, I can't, I haven't heard any Tekken players say anything nice about it in Sydney. They don't touch it, they don't get near it. So in in terms of bringing in Tekken players who might be curious, it has failed catastrophically, at least in Sydney. Um... In terms of getting people, I mean, it, it fills the niche in the sense that there are people who feel Street Fighter 4 is long in the tooth and they're ready for something new. So it kind of fills that void. But um, it hasn't done it in a way that kind of naturally evolves the Street Fighter franchise. So the same way that CVS2 was never going to win over Third Strike players, um, Cross Tekken's not going to win over Street Fighter Four players, but it has the extra thing against it. Whereas, I don't know, I'm being an old man, I might be different perspective but with CVS I never played like King of Fighters games but I knew of the characters and I always thought they were cool and being able to play them in a Street Fighter engine because I never liked the graphics or the engine in KOF games but being able to play them in a Street Fighter style game was very appealing to me. I mostly played SNK characters in that game and I really enjoyed it um, but you you put the Tekken cards in front of me, I don't really care I've, I played Tekken 3 back in the day and Tekken 2 just casually on console but I gave up on the series after that and to be honest like to me they their characters don't have a lot of appeal. So it, it doesn't, it doesn't rope me in. It doesn't have that, oh, this is Street Fighter, but with a new twist that I felt with CVS. So it it kind of alienates me in a lot of ways.
0: To be yeah. honest with you, what, what, what you actually said, um, you know, it's the crossover which nobody asked for. That first day that Ono showed that video, I think it was at <laughs> um, New York Comic Con, one of the Comic Cons. Yeah, yeah. I just thought, why? Yep. Why do we need this? And I, I got an instant message from one of my friends, um, Slorp, who's actually in Europe at the moment, mm-hmm. uh, who I've been playing Street Fighter 2 for since a very long time. And he basically sent me the same thing going, why? <laughs> why do we need this? Who asked for this? I, I don't understand.
1: Um. Like You almost feel like if you're a fly on the wall in the bar where Ono and Harada were having drinks when they made the decision, you wonder how drunk they were when they finally <laughs> decided. Yeah. But, but it's it just kind of, yeah, It's it's like... Yeah, as you say, like the, with the recent announcements around Daryl Life Five, for example, inserting virtual fighter characters in Daryl Life Five—that makes so much sense. Yeah, mm. makes sense. Like yeah. it's a natural fit because Daryl Live was—it um, was inspired by VF, yes, and it was absolutely. made as a casual, just fun muck-around version of VF, and it made sense to kind of meld those worlds. Whereas with Tekken and Street Fighter, like you just look at it and you go, to make this work, you have got to bastardize one side of the equation. You got to pick. You got to pick one, and you got to bastardise. And like, you, I don't know if you saw Ryan Hart's rant about um, how the Tekken characters have been handled. In,
0: you mm. um, know. Uh, no, actually, I missed that.
1: Yeah, well, I, I didn't read all of it, but basically, um, he was saying that. Look, I've played both games, right, and I enjoy Street Fighter Cross Tekken. But if I just put my Tekken hat on for a second, the only thing that's Tekken in these characters is the name on the life bar and the skin on the model. The rest of it. You might as well have – you could have any new character from the Street Fighter franchise and give them any name you like. They are Street Fighter characters, new Street Fighter characters with Tekken skins and names. They don't play anything like Tekken characters. And that sort of defeats the purpose because when you go in and you play CVS 2, for example, and you pick Terry, well, he's Terry. He does Terry's stuff. He has Terry's combos. He has Terry's inputs. He has Terry's stuff. You pick lore in this game and, like, he's got a combo in Tekken which is, like, left kick, right kick, left kick, or the other way around. In this is, like, quarter circle forward plus kick. Yeah, that's, it's like, that's not that's not even the same game anymore. How 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 do you come from Tekken and say I know what's going on here? It just doesn't make any sense. And King not having his cha- chain grabs drives me crazy. But- oh yeah, and the few times I saw videos and saw Nina trying to do chain mm. grab combos, and they were just broken after the first bit every time. He's like, "What is this? Yeah, what, what is- am I looking at here? Yeah, it's just yeah, I don't know. It's, it, it rubs me the wrong way on." many, many levels, and I've had to hold myself back actually from going all soap opera on the game on uh, on Oslo and getting up on my soapbox and whinging and whining about it because, you know, like, my whinging and whining is not going to fix anybody's problems, but um, just so much about the game disagrees with See,
0: for me, I keep thinking that surely this is not the final version. There must be something <laughs> new coming out because, honestly I don't know, like, I thought I'd give this game a chance. Yeah. Honestly, coming in I didn't really look at too much hype or anything about that I sat down, I tried playing it, and I keep thinking it's like, it feels so unfinished. It Mm -hmm. it feels so many things in the game don't make sense. For example, and and this is, again, uh, one of the characters which really appeals to me is King. And King, for example, can cancel his command grabs from normals. The stupid Mm -hmm. thing is the command grab whiffs because there's too much hit stun when I hit Uh, him. So it's like, why would you give him this ability (laughs) to be able to cancel his command grabs, but then they whiff because... When I'm
1: hitting him, like what, what happens if you hit him? Um, cancel on block stun. Can you grab them? Were they in block stun too long to well, grab them? Well, Well, that's the thing.
0: In, in certain cases, they are in block stun too long. If I if, if I use a light punch, for example, then it's fine. But if I use a medium punch, I just walk right in front of them.
2: So I I might be misunderstanding all this, but what's what is what are you trying to get at? But isn't it like you? I'm saying that
0: some of the mechanics of the game just do not make sense. Okay. Um, you know, it just feels like the game is not isn't this, finalized. Isn't
2: this like some noob Zangief hits you with low four and tries to cancel the SPD and it whiffs and it's the same thing?
0: Not really.
2: Because I, okay, I, I did not play King Tekken. I don't, I don't, yeah. I don't know why you're talking Anyway, about.
0: it's a really bizarre example, but they gave him this ability to be able to cancel normal moves into his command grabs. Yeah. Right, that does like, but then they whiff when you hit them. So
1: yeah, because like I mean, in Tekken, there's not cancels per se, right? I mean, mm. the game's more about chains, like there's oh, certain moves that you can mean. chain one after the other. So you don't really have cancels in Tekken unless you've got things where you can like. Well, I don't even think in Tekken you can do it. Like, in VF, you can guard cancel animations of normals and things like that. So you do have that kind of aborting of an attack and then going into something else. But in Tekken, there's no guard button. So once you press a button, I think you're generally committed to the normal or the move or whatever. Mm -hmm. So cancelling a poke into a grab is not what you would do in Tekken. In Tekken, you sort of fake out to get them to whiff something so you can grab them or whatever. So to then apply Street Fighter's mechanics of normals cancelling into grabs, which, I I mean, Mutton's 100% right. If Zangy did a crouching move forward into... SPD would fail because they're in blocks and you're not allowed to do that. Fine. But um, as a Tekken player, as a King player, you never had that option anyway. Now you've got it and it's useless. You ask yourself, well, oh. who adds useless crap to my character? Why, why would you do that? Okay, I understand now. Yeah. It, it's a consequence of the engine and it's consistent with Street Fighter engine. But if you're asking yourself, you've taken my character and put them in this engine and half the stuff they can do because they're in this engine doesn't make any sense to me. It's kind of off-putting, I suppose. Yeah, right.
0: Exactly. Um, I mean, look, it, again, it's still kind of early days for the game. I'm still in a way, kind of hoping that somebody's going to figure out some magical thing that'll make the game better. But as it stands of, you know, today, 14th of the fourth, two (laughs) 2012, the game, uh, to me, actually, to be honest, uh, the the next big step is going to be the next US Major to see how many people enter and what the numbers are and and where they actually put the game. Because if they put it at the end again and they have... Tremendous amount of drop off in numbers. Yeah, that's going to be, it's, it's really, it's going to be really interesting. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah. What is, uh, I haven't been following any US streams since like uh, even before I joined. So, what, have, what has viewership been like around Street Fighter Cross Tech and at some of the US majors?
2: Like, for example, the recent NCR, everything mm. was really hype and then Cross Second came on and basically they got a huge drop off in the stream.
0: View. Yeah. Wow. So, the stream numbers were about 26K for Marvel mm. and yeah. then it dropped to about 17 for when CrossTekin came on. and um,
2: mm. I guess part of that was because it was infiltration against Chris G and infiltration was playing jab, jab, run away.
0: Uh, no, 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 no. For the entire top eight, <laughs> oh, that's yeah. the thing. It's, you're just talking about the grand finals. I talking finals, about the entire yeah. top okay, eight, yeah, yeah. the numbers just slid. All right, yeah. Um, and to be honest, though, looking at the stream numbers from 2010, we have progressively streams... Especially spooky, and mm-hmm. I play winner. But even uh, like all the ma- major U.S. streams have progressively been gaining numbers in viewership levels. Mm-hmm. You know, for example, I remember watching uh, West Coast Warzone three. Mm-hmm. It's peaked at about eight thousand. Mm-hmm. Um, watching Seasons beatings in two thousand and ten, it mm-hmm. peaked out about again eight to nine thousand. Seasons beatings last year was mm-hmm. about. Twenty six thousand. so every year progressively the numbers have been going up for streams but now the first thing that we've seen is grand finals cross tekken comes on and we get a huge slide in numbers so this this is kind of also an interesting perspective from what you've mentioned earlier ziggy is that you know we could be stagnating and this game could potentially actually hurt the scene more from even a viewership perspective which is something that majority of the sponsors are going to be looking at when it comes to you know Funding our events, both U.S. but and here as well.
2: But yeah, I guess that's in the future. Who knows Mm. what might happen? Maybe role canceling be discovered or some similar thing, and the game would be fantastic. I don't
3: know.
2: (laughs) Yeah, you
1: gotta yeah, you gotta be careful with those things, though, because like things like role cancel. Yeah, suddenly people discover like this hardcore competitive aspect of the game that wasn't there, and it makes it exciting. But then the accessibility of the game goes down. So what you end up getting, you end up getting more spectators than competitors, and. More spectators is good, but it's the competitors which actually fuel the pot, right? So you kind of you need a bit from both corners. I mean, one of Marvel Two's biggest sins was that while it was a ten-year surviving strong competitive game, there's only a handful of people who could actually really play it. Yeah, or play it in, at
0: the highest level. Yeah,
1: yeah, where it counted. So, and CBS Two got that way very early on as well. Like, I was not a role cancel player. I I gave up and just played K groove once role cancel was discovered because like, I couldn't do it. It was just. I'm not a two-frame cancel guy. I just can't do it. So, um, and then you're always at that disadvantage. You're always having to fight against that awkward mechanic. And you know, some people they are either in or out at that point.
0: Mm. See, that's actually a really interesting point as well that you brought up there. Just talking about um, something which actually I wanted to ask you about. You know, how do you feel about Kotaku browsers and esports? And esports. But <laughs> something which actually mentioned you said that is, you know, there is a certain level of people that you'll get more viewers rather mm. than players but traditionally the fighting game community in general has been all about players and parts that players bring in rather than actual sort of specialists that we watch mm. so this kind of also brings it i think to a certain point of esports where mlg for example they don't really have open tournaments they it, it's for certain aspects of starcraft they only have in, invitational tournaments and then people go and view Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what do you think about these sort of two different models and, you know, where do you think that the future of this, of our current model is going?
1: Well, I think that as long as they're cost effective, the eSports invitational model can, will, and should exist. Like, as long as someone can make a buck out of it, they're bound to try and do it. And um, make no mistakes, e-sport mistakes, eSports is a business. It's about securing the sponsorship dollars and advertising the sponsors and having something that gets viewers in to watch the ads during the thing. I mean, that's how it all works. Um, And I mean, it's good because it raises the exposure. The more that that happens, the more likely you are to pick up more mainstream attention. Um, The nice thing about the video game space as opposed to like the, the traditional sports space is that it's probably easier for people to go out there, buy an Xbox and pick up a controller and think that they can play this game. Like with pro, with pro sports, I mean, if you're uh, you know, a five foot five midget, you know basketball is just not in, on the card Martin. <laughs> <laughs> so there, there's these natural physical barriers. I mean, they exist in fighting in video, all video games as well. But they're not as obvious. They're not as in your face. So the mystique of, yes, I can be a player as well, kind of lives a bit longer with these kinds of games. Now, not to say that we want to con everybody into playing for a while, or whatever, but um, people have to feel like they've got a chance or there's something they can get out of it, even if it only ends up becoming casual for them. Um, whereas a lot of people might even struggle to enjoy certain sports casually because physically it's just really hard for them to get into it. So it's it's nice in that respect. Um but to answer your question, I think that they, the two really will always sort of coexist. Like you're not going to have Invitational Esports killing grassroots kind of open entry tournaments because some, you have to go somewhere to train up, to get the skills, to be good enough, to be recognized, to be invited. So you need all this community-run stuff. I mean, it's a shame. Uh, as long as we can make keep that cost effective as well. You keep that stuff going. That's the training grounds. It's the proving grounds. It's the same in like sport, right? I mean, you don't walk straight into the NRL Premier League. You actually come up through juniors at your local... And and that's run by community groups, and it's not big money turners and that kind of thing. So it's all part of the same equation. People need to get out of their heads that it's one or the other. It's not that at all. I mean, it's it's all one big collective thing. And you only I mean, for years we've said, you know, what about us? It isn't fair, kind of thing, because all the other games like StarCraft were getting that and we weren't. Now we're getting it. And some people are saying, oh hang on, do we really want this? It's like, no, calm down. Don't worry. It's it's fine. Just chill. You know, let, let it happen. It, just because you didn't get the invite doesn't mean you don't count. You know, relax. <laughs> you know you, if you're good enough, your time will come. And if you're not, just go and win Evo. That's open entry. Don't 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 worry about it. So you know, Evo's not. Uh, people get in their heads. Oh, Evo will die, or Evo will turn into esports, or it has to be this or that. And um, no, no, no. I mean, you just just walk past your local oval on a Saturday and see the kids playing cricket or football, and remember, that's that's all we're really doing, just in electronic form. Yes.
0: The other thing is actually is starting off. In that perspective, if you play these sorts of games and then later on, you'll basically, if you don't decide not to say good professional or you, you don't become, you can't play at that level, you still have a certain level of appreciation mm. for the people who actually how they play. Um, and I think this is where StarCraft, for example, is why it's so big. It's because for 10 years, people have been watching Koreans dominate. Um, and it's not just in Korea it's you know I have friends who basically was sitting down and watching the Korean streams way before Starcraft 2 was even on the map um, and you know we all played Starcraft 1 and we know and we know the actually, the other good thing about Starcraft 1 was the computer was fairly brutal if you didn't know what you were doing right So they and my housemates for example, they have a level of understanding and appreciation of what the Starcraft professional players do because they played Starcraft you know, in in their younger days and they understand what it is that these guys are doing that makes them top players, even though they can't do it themselves.
1: I think you're absolutely right. I mean, spectators will have their place. I mean, let's face it, I'm as casual as it comes now. I, I spend way more time CPUing than anything else when I'm playing fighting games. Um, I'm content to do that. I'm not physically at the place where I can keep playing a lot anyways. You do a bit of RSI and what have you. So I, I, and I don't get the hours, I don't get the time and I don't have the, dedication to actually improve. And I'm lying to myself if I say anything else. So um, long ago I accepted that I wasn't prepared to do what was necessary to improve. And, but that doesn't mean I don't enjoy the engines of some of the games or I don't get a kick out of them. I muck around with Marvel heaps. I find that game a lot of fun just to get out. I love the the setting. I love the characters. I'm a fanboy for Marvel stuff and for Capcom stuff. And um, I love the fact that I can just do lazy, silly, cheap combos and they work and everything's fun. Um, I'd get scraped by anybody that, that, that knew what they were doing. That's fine. I don't care. It's not why I'm playing. I'm, for me, it's... it's um, I remember reading somewhere someone saying that you, know, you, you might play a fighting game not because you're in it for the competition or the challenge, you might just play it as sort of a, a zoning out, a zen exercise where you're just forgetting about the rest of the world, you're going into this space, you're, you're solving the puzzle of the fighting game in front of you and you're just exploring that engine and just the, the routine of doing your favorite combos or whatever is relaxing. Yeah, and um, and
0: you're actually exploring ideas or you might have like a yes. thought of something, well how about I try this or could this character do this? Um, yes, exactly. You know, or I have a problem in front of me. How can I solve it with my, say, my character X versus character Y? Um, That's And exactly. you might not necessarily be, you know, a competitive player. I mean, actually, to be honest with you, I'm in the same boat these days. The only game that I take semi-seriously is Super Turbo. Um, but all the other games, I sort of just sit there and I think about how things should go or how things play out. And you know, me and Martin go on to like hour-long discussions of Ryu versus <laughs> character X and yep. you know why i'm wrong and he's right most of the time because well he plays the game more than i do <laughs> um but you know it, it's it's yeah it's, i've gotten to that point as well where i know i'm not going to be competitive yeah it's I, I just like thinking about the games in general
1: i oh, absolutely like i've got um i talk regularly to a group of you know oz hado is in sydney and um Pretty much all of them, if you press them, would, even though they go to YSP and stuff, would say, yeah, I'm not competitive, I'm not hardcore, I'm not serious anymore. They still go to events, they still play. But, you know, they talk about the games and they talk about this setup or what this guy did on that stream in that final and why it's good and why it's bad and that kind of thing. And I mean, you know, it, it's a language, it's a culture, it's a, it's a problem-solving space. And, I mean, a, a good problem-solving space is inexhaustible, right? You can explore it to your heart's content. And um, for people who just like to think about stuff, then it's a lot of fun.
0: Sorry, I want to ask this question. So how did you get the name Ziggy?
1: Oh, dear. It has nothing to do with the Fire community at all. Um, It was purely when I started off in high school in year seven. um, There were one too many Andrews in the year, (laughs) as there are everywhere you go. (laughs) So inevitably, Andrew was never going to fly because I was the nerd, so I couldn't be called Andrew. The Andrews were going to be called Andrew. So um, one look at my surname, Zyogus, and it's like, right, you're Ziggy and that was the end of that originally it was kind of like um, it was a bit of a dig it was sort of kids poking fun and trying to come up with a nickname and um, then I just embraced it and said well fine I'll be Ziggy that's cool Um, so
2: everybody your friends call you Ziggy Your, your mom calls you Ziggy
1: my parents don't call me Ziggy, no. My f- my immediate family doesn't call me Ziggy. Fun of the funny part about that is my father was called Ziggy when he was in high school. His ah. brothers his brothers <laughs> were called Ziggy when they were in high school. I got a cousin whose username on the forums used to be Trickster, who's a Marvel 2 champion at OHN yeah. Two. He used to be called Ziggy and he was quite put out when he joined the community and I was already called Ziggy. He had to call himself something else. Wow, there's a um, clan. <laughs> so it's a whole clan of, of Ziggy's yoguses. But um <laughs> But yeah, so, but my, my school friends called me that. And um, when the internet came into my life, it's kind of, well, I need a handle. Well, I'm lazy. Ziggy will do. And uh, I just stuck with it socially in that. Like, I don't, I don't get it at work. I don't get it in family. But socially, I've always been known as Ziggy. Oh, that's, that's real interesting. <laughs> <laughs> a <awesome>. clan Ziggy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah.
0: Mm. So, yeah, you have also um, noted that, sorry. I've noticed, and a few others in the community have noticed, that you have a slight resemblance to Richard Nixon. Uh, do you consider this as a compliment, or… Is it warranted? Yeah. Or is it warranted?
1: <laughs> well, that's the first time I've heard it, actually. <laughs> so I've never been called Richard Nixon by, or Richard Nixon lookalike by anybody in the Sydney community ever, mm. or any friend ever, so this is a first, this is a oh. world's first. Um, I can see where it comes from because of the awesome receding hairline. Um, <laughs> the, the race for pure baldness is on. Um, In fact, I was kind of competing with Ketchu at one point. (laughs) Oh, Ketchu's (laughs) on for that. (laughs) Yeah. um, So I can I can see that. I suppose when I furrow my brow, I have the uh, the Nixon worry lines too. I guess. um, (laughs) I I, I guess if they're ever going to make another Nixon biography, I should put my hand up.
2: Yeah, potential career. (laughs) Nixon
1: impersonator. Yes.
2: So yeah, I'm um, <laughs> gonna oh, wrap wait. up with some more positive stuff. Like I was gonna
0: say, Oh Chen Gate, <laughs> Oh <we're> Chen Gate, <laughs>
2: nice, like <laughs> okay. it. So yeah, um, um, what, who, what are some of the, your favorite players to watch? Um, fi- favorite fighting game players? Uh, do you have any favorite commentators or like community guy? Do you like Ryan Hunter or James Chen? Or... Yeah.
1: Well, Just... I guess on the American scene side of things, I've always been a fan of Scant and. Um, Predominantly because I just love his analytic mind. Me too. Uh, he's not the best player in the world, and that's fine, and he's honest about his shortcomings. He's well, he's in
0: Marvel at the moment.
1: Well, uh, is, is, is he an ultimate? I mean, he, he's champion in, um,
0: in vanilla, but in yeah, he's
1: saying. fallen
2: off a little bit as, as he did because of Phoenix, I guess.
1: Mm. Yeah. He's the kind of man who, if he can find a big enough crutch, he can ride that crutch very far. Mm. But sometimes if the game doesn't have a nice enough crutch, then life becomes hard for him. But you, know, you need guys like that in the community anyway. Who can abuse things so that people work out how to properly defeat it Um, so Japan doesn't blow you up and what have you but I just love the way he's a very good writer So, and because most of my absorption of the community came in an age when it was just reading forums so reading his threads on why this character is good, why this character is broken, why this game is good, why this game is rubbish um, I always really enjoyed and his sensibilities align with me like he thinks Super Turbo is an awesome game Um, He thinks it's, like, really a Marvel game and not a Street Fighter game, and I find that fascinating. I love it when he talks about what's wrong with Third Strike, because I totally agree with him that Third Strike is trash. Um, So we, we, we seem to think alike all the time, but I can't come up with his ideas, so I'm always in awe of his ability to break down the game because I'm, like, I'm not a dumb guy, but like, I reckon you guys are both way more analytic in fighting games than me. I just, I kind of just sit there and let it wash over me. I don't think about it anywhere near as much as I should. Well, I mean, so I, I I'm very some, passive.
2: I think um, people like to think about fighting games, but not everyone can be an original thinker like Viscan. And I don't think I'm a, I can ever be like Viscan as well. Mm. Mm. To have your own, come of your basically your own argument instead of being a sheep, I guess.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's impressive the way he just puts his view out there. He doesn't care if it runs against the grain. But when challenged, he can completely articulate why. And there's a lot, a lot of people who can do that. A lot of very good players can say, "This is how it is. Why? Oh, because I won last week." But how did? But how did you win? Why did you win? I don't know. I just know it works. I can't describe it. And Viscant will describe it in three thousand words or less, sort of thing. So, um, and I find that really interesting. Like the, my favorite cross counter video of all time was the Viscant Marvel three yes. one. Yes. Yes,
2: that was the best one.
0: I went out and paid for that instantly. Yeah.
1: That yeah, was so, Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, so, um, So. but in terms of, um, you know, other competitors and things, um, I mean, I have a soft spot for Alex Valle, you know, the OG man. Alex Faye and John Choi, like, I didn't see at the time they happened, the Alpha 2 finals. It wasn't until many years later I saw the B3 or the videos. But, you know, you hear the names thrown around enough and you watch enough Evo st finals with these guys doing their thing and let's face it everyone's got a ryu inside them somewhere yes (laughs) so you know you see these gods of ryu and you just go man these guys are just great you know they they do their thing so well totally different styles they're both pretty good guys cool guys and they give so much back to the community as well so you kind of got to take your hat off to them you can appreciate them on both sides of the coin um big fan of the canon brothers They've done so much for the for the scene in the community and I mean I look up to them whenever I'm thinking tournaments inevitably because I just think that they've set the bar in terms of what's right what's wrong and how to do things they're not always right mind you they I've disagreed many occasions but um, it's just great that they I, I can relate to them as well a lot of times because they they go through the same kind of ruts you, you see it in when they're posting on forums and blogs and things they often have the same they the same things get under their skin or the same things frustrate them so i appreciate that sort of things um, um before you you go on can i interrupt you and ask you something like
2: i want to get your opinion on something me ego have been arguing for ages and which is the yellow card to justin wong for playing phoenix on point
1: oh yes mm. what
2: do you feel about that i'm on the it was warranted because we be organizers put on a tournament and if you don't play your best you're yeah, I mean, what's the point of even having the tournament up there? And Igor is like, he's a playing competitor and he should be able to do whatever he wants. What? what how do you feel about that?
1: i have to say I have a foot in both camps, which is not a very strong way of looking at it. But I mean, on the one hand, I totally agree that it's not like he did anything illegal. And he certainly there, there's certainly no proof that he match-fixed. Like, you can't really prove it. And aside from the obvious, picking finish on point is logistically retarded. Um, there's no evidence that he's set it up to do that and i'm like like the 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 tricky thing about match fixing is like anybody when confronted can find a way to justify why they did what they did um so you've kind of as an organizer you've kind of got to put yourself out there and just draw a line and say no i'm going to take that as inappropriate so just remember that i'm keeping an eye on it sort of thing so i think on the one hand it's hard to prove but on the other hand they had to make an example of him because it was the best example they are probably ever going to get.
2: Yeah, that's true. That's if true. I mean? mm-hmm.
1: So if you were going to make a call, A, it was a huge name. B, it was really uncharacteristic play. C, it made no, no sense competitive-wise, even if he wasn't trying to match fix. So because if they would let it go, people who were match fixing could have done the same thing and used him as an avatar What was okay. So unfortunately, someone had to take a hit. Um, better that they're prepared to say that they'll do something than to be two hands off and let everything fly. But the good news is that they haven't had to come down since. So perhaps it has worked. Perhaps, perhaps it's worked the, a bit better. Yeah. And it didn't really hurt Justin Wong's chances that Evo year anyway. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, he took a hit, but I don't think he suffered as a competitor. I don't think the community suffered as a result. So that's the thing you've got to remember. That Cannon Brothers aren't stupid guys. I mean, they're very smart. They'll, they'll, they'll weigh up all the pros and cons, and they're not just going to fire like loose cannons, haha, ha but they will actually pick their moments based on very rational and intelligent arguments. I mean, it's a miracle that the community in the US has these two geniuses heading up their most important tournament um, community-wise because, you know, it could easily be the Jason Wilsons of the world which have mixed reputations, also run massive tournaments but haven't always come off as squeaky clean or as rational in their choices.
2: So, yeah. um you want uh, any more names you want to Or I
1: was
0: going to say, do you have any final shout-outs?
3: Yeah.
1: Um, final shout-outs, I guess... Shout-outs to the Australian fighting game community. You've got to say that. I mean, if it wasn't for them and their passion for the games, I wouldn't have had a hobby for the last 10 or something years. Um, you no, know, props to you know all my colleagues, I'll primarily Shane and Spencer, doing all the good work that they're doing. Um, but yeah, I, I hesitate to, it's actually hard because I don't want to play favorites and name. I don't want to name any scene over any other because like, there's heaps of cool people in all the scene. And I've made a lot of friends all over the place. Brisbane, Perth, Adelaide, Melbourne, Canberra, maybe one day Tasmania will come on the map. But all, all you guys have just done wonderful stuff. Like Shout-outs to you guys, Igor and Mutton, for doing what you do because we don't have anywhere near enough content generation in Australia. And it's criminal because we've got some great personalities and some great players. And um, it's a shame that we don't kind of profile them more. So thank you for doing what you're doing, not just to interview the international talent comes out, but to help raise the profile of our local talent too. Yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, it's we find it really illuminating as well. Like I just learned so much about Sydney and Osadu today. Mm. Feel that it's quite important for the 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 organisers, like Loki's profile and your profile, to be out there just as much as you know the Cns and the and the Gutex and the and the Tokidos out there. And people need to know more about. You know the people that put in the work, like yourself. Mm, and
1: well, I mean, I think it's good to humanise us as well as organisers too. I mean, it goes for the players as well. But often with organisers, because people are thrice removed from us. Like, if you're not one of our immediate friends in the community, we probably don't talk to you as a player very much. And there can often be this impression that you know we're big evil Illuminati people who sit in the background pushing our own agendas and um, to the detriment of the little guy on on the on the machine. But yes. wait, really not? <laughs> oh, sorry, I didn't mean to shatter the illusion. But yeah, we're um. I mean, at the end of the day, we we wouldn't be doing this if we weren't players at some point ourselves. And we only – we're the, 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 people sit down to play for fun at the end of the day, most of them. I only go to run a tournament for fun, okay? I'm not there to to, to be the, the, the DQ Nazi. <laughs> I don't get a kick – Yang might, but I don't get a kick out of it. But I, I – Sorry, Yang, but I um the the I do it because there's an aspect of it that I find fascinating. I find the people fascinating, and I find the games fascinating, and so I'm doing it because it's fun and because I enjoy it. And Most people don't find running brackets fun, and that's the that's understandable. But you know, um, I love running brackets honestly because
2: you're a control freak. That's why.
3: That's
1: true. That's true. <laughs> there is a certain power of knowing that if that man hasn't turned up within the next three minutes, you can ruin his two dollar entry fee. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but um, but no, it's um. No, it, it's. It, I appreciate that you guys are willing to talk to community stakeholders other than top players, and um, yeah, uh, it's it, it's good. We are we are people too. Cut us and we bleed, and um, hate on us in the forums, and we do listen. So it's uh, it's like we are responding. and We want to make it. I mean, we can't have fun unless you're having fun. So
2: mm, that's the biggest w- thing to take away from this. Yeah, yeah.
1: always remember that.
2: Mm. All right, so I think. Mm,
0: yeah. Well, thank you very much, Ziggy. Yep. Just gonna no, wrap thank it up. You. Thank
2: you very much, sir.
1: Cheers, guys. You are listening to a Scrub
4: Podcast. Stay hungry, stay salty, and continue listening.
0: Once again, I'd like to thank Ziggy for sitting down and doing the interview with us. Uh, it was a great learning experience for both Martin and myself. We really appreciate it. And we hope that you have a better understanding of how the Australian fighting game community has been formed. And that's just about going to wrap it up for this episode of Don't Be A Scrub podcast. Feel free to subscribe to our RSS feed, which can be found on Martin's blog, which is being ascrub.com. Give us any feedback or constructive criticism on any of the websites where you find this show we read them all and as always stay hungry stay salty and thank you for listening